Well, good evening, little masters, and welcome to episode 160 of the Prancing Pony podcast, where today we're going back to nature. Just as long as that doesn't make us naturists. Oh, that is a distinctly bad idea, Sean. That's one I just don't want to ever imagine. I want no part of it, and frankly, I'm sorry that I said it. But (laughs) folks, go ahead and pull up a bench in the common room, and we'll be right there. I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the Man of the West, who has a mind of metal and wheels, Alan Sisto. Now it's my turn to say I didn't write that. Mm. Thanks a lot. Calling me Saruman, I suppose. Maybe if we're talking about my car. I'll I'll, I'll let it slide. There you go. Yeah. Well, folks, today we would like to welcome you all to our fifth annual, fifth annual Tolkien Reading Day special. Five of these now. That's awesome. Unbelievable. Now, for those of you not familiar with the event, Tolkien Reading Day has been organized by the Tolkien Society since 2003 to encourage fans to celebrate and promote the life and works of J.R.R. Tolkien by reading favorite passages. That's right. It happens every year on March 25th. That's the date of the downfall of Sauron and the destruction of Barad-dûr. And that's just a few days away as of when this episode comes out. So you've still got a little time to figure out what your reading is going to be on this year's theme. That's right, because every year the Tolkien Society chooses a different theme to focus on. And this year's theme is Nature versus Industry. Mm, it's a good one. So we're going to be yeah, spending this episode reading some of our favorite passages from the Legendarium in which these two forces clash. We're going to be bringing out some passages that I'm sure you'll be expecting, but hopefully we'll be dropping a few surprises on you as well. I hope so. And in keeping with our Tolkien Reading Day tradition here at the Prancing Pony podcast, we're going to spend our time today, well, mostly reading and not talking mm-hmm. quite as much. That's the plan anyway. We'll see how it goes. We'll see how that goes. It is always hard to get us to stop talking, but you know. (laughs) But we do want to start the reading as soon as possible. Right. But before we do that, it is time for another Tolkien quote of the day. Now, for this segment today, we've picked a couple of longish quotes from Tolkien's letters that we think illustrate the theme of nature versus industry, especially in regards to the way we're going to be looking at it in this episode. Mm -hmm. Now, that means one of these is a more literal treatment of the topic. The other one's a little bit more metaphysical, but let's start with the literal one. Alan? Okay. Well, this is from letter number 339. It's written to the editor of the Daily Telegraph in 1972. In fact, it's most of the letter. (laughs) In June of 1972, the Daily Telegraph ran an article entitled Forestry and Us, which used the phrase Tolkien gloom to describe the transformation of natural spaces into places devoid of life where no bird sings. Well, as you might imagine, Tolkien took exception to his name being used to refer to nature being spoiled in that way. Mm -hmm. He said, and this is just pure brilliance from the pen of Tolkien, I feel that it is unfair to use my name as an adjective qualifying gloom, especially in a context dealing with trees. In all my works, I take the part of trees as against all their enemies. Lothlorien is beautiful because there the trees were loved. Elsewhere, forests are represented as awakening to consciousness of themselves. The old forest was hostile to two-legged creatures because of the memory of many injuries. Fangorn Forest was old and beautiful, but at the time of the story, tense with hostility because it was threatened by a machine-loving enemy. Mirkwood had fallen under the domination of a power that hated all living things, but was restored to beauty and became Greenwood the Great before the end of the story. It would be unfair to compare the forestry commission with Sauron because, as you observe, it is capable of repentance, but nothing it has done that is stupid compares with the destruction, torture, and murder of trees perpetrated by private individuals and minor official bodies. The savage sound of the electric saw is never silent wherever trees are still found growing. Wow. 
Yeah. I really yeah. like that letter. That's it, You're right. It is just pure brilliance. Mm-hmm. That cutting wit that Tolkien has. And, uh, yeah. And just, uh, well, again, that way with words that we love so much. Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting that the the author of the article that he's responding to obviously really didn't have a very good understanding of Tolkien. I mean, it seems like if you're referring to natural spaces devoid of life as Tolkien gloom, you know, gloomy, yeah. uh, that, that's not... It's not Tolkienian at all, and and I gotta wonder no, what isn't. this person was thinking of. Maybe they're thinking of Mirkwood or something like that. But that's the only thing I'm thinking of is where the forest was just, you know, you had half dead trees and you had yeah. no living thing that was good. You had you know bad water. You had no air, yeah. no sun. Yeah, and maybe that's it. But I mean, again, Mirkwood is a place where nature has been despoiled, right? By right, by absolutely. By, by the That's what Tolkien explains here. It's like, you've yeah. got to understand these three forests that are kind of bad places in the story are bad for mm-hmm. reasons. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So I think it's really interesting that he, he took that opportunity to, let's say, educate on what exactly <laughs> uh, a Tolkienian approach yeah. to nature is. You'd think that by 1972, journalists would have known better yeah, than yeah. to attach his name to something without making sure. You'd think, like, don't you think it would make the rounds? Obviously, that, he had skewered quite a few journalists by that time. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's kind of what I'm thinking. Uh, you yeah. know, this is this is towards the very end of his life. He's certainly been well known for a long time. By this point, the Lord of the Rings has been exceedingly popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's been out for quite some time. So, yeah. And I just I love his way with words in this last paragraph here about the destruction, oh, torture, and murder of trees. I mean, that's yeah, it's heartbreaking. Strong language. It's, it's and, tremendously worded. It's it's beautifully phrased. Mm-hmm. And it's intensely personal. You, know, you can absolutely. tell how yeah. deeply this moves him. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And even the alliteration, the savage sound of the electric saw is never silent. Ooh, that's a good catch. He just can't yeah. get away from it, can he? <laughs> no, he really no. can't. No. That's really cool. I didn't even pick up on that. But yeah, it's totally there. Yeah. Even in a letter to the Daily Telegraph. Yeah, that's. Uh, yeah, I know. Pretty powerful stuff. Pretty amazing stuff. But, I agree. You know, that's our professor, you know? That it is. We should not be surprised by that. No. But we do have another quote of his that illustrates another aspect of this idea of nature versus industry that I want our listeners to be thinking about. Okay. Now, this one is about the idea of using industry or technology or artifice to overcome our own nature. Now, it's a passage Mm. that we've talked about before, and it is, of course, from... Say oh. it with me, folks. Oh, letter number one thirty one to Milton Waldman. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Now, remember, Tolkien told Waldman all this stuff is mainly concerned with fall, mortality, and the machine. Now, he then went on to explain what fall was and what mortality was. And then he mm-hmm. said, Both of these, alone or together, will lead to the desire for power, for making the will more quickly effective. And so to the machine or magic. By the last, I intend all use of external plans or devices, apparatus, instead of development of the inherent inner powers or talents, or even the use of these talents with a corrupted motive of dominating, bulldozing the real world, or coercing other wills. The machine is our more obvious modern form, though more closely related to magic than is usually recognized. Hmm. And this idea that the machine is more closely related to magic than we recognize is fascinating yeah. and important. Yeah. In both cases, it's the use of, of an external plan or device or, or even our own talents, but with a corrupt motive to dominate. Mm-hmm. That's right. And we're going to be seeing a lot of that in our readings today. We're going to see characters use external devices to 
enhance, you know, their natural abilities instead of relying on their mm-hmm. own, you know, inner powers or talents, as he says. Now, sometimes right. we, see th- we see that being a good thing, but we also mm-hmm. see that it can be a path to corruption. And especially when they That's use the that thing, power yeah. to dominate. That's when you end up with problems. But we're going to be seeing a lot of that today. And I think one of the most interesting things for me, as we've kind of looked into this topic for this episode today, one of the most interesting things to me has been the way that we use this sort of industry, this kind of industry specifically, to sort of fight against our own natures. So yeah, I think it's going to be a really fun episode. I think it is too. You know, as we begin to read, uh, or I should say before we start reading, we're about to, I was just thinking about this, and this isn't in our notes, but- mm-hmm. I had this kind of thought as you were reading that quote, this idea of the machine or magic, external plans or devices, mm-hmm. instead of developing our own talents. And then he even mentions even the use of our talents, but with corrupt motive. And it made me mm-hmm. think that there's almost two scales here. There's there's a scale, I guess if we wanted to plot this out as an XY graph, you'd have an X axis that on the left-hand side would be pure motive. Mm-hmm. And on the right-hand side would be corrupt motive uh, of domination. Like the of domination, domination of others. Okay. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then you'd have a Y-axis that would reflect the involvement of the machine. Mm-hmm. So at the bottom would be, you know, totally natural. In the middle might be some things that are designed to uh, develop or enhance your inner mm-hmm. powers. And at the top would be full-blown machines like Saruman. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I wonder as we read, I think we'll see where things fall on this spectrum, this sort of XY graph. I don't know. I think that's I'm a good idea. grasping at straws here. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think you are. I think that's a really good oh, okay. insight. And I'm, I'm glad you came up with it because I think it'll give us something to do to sort of evaluate some of these, some oh, of these okay, struggles yeah. that we're going to see. And it, it, I don't think every re- reading we have is going to be a straight one-to-one conflict between nature and no, industry. No. But I think what we can do is as we read each of these, we can talk yeah. about sort of plot them on the graph. I think that's a really cool idea. Right. And I think we'll see, okay. uh, maybe we'll see some interesting things because I think it'll give us a way to sort of quantify the struggle between uh, nature and industry right. and the struggle between whether it's a good thing or a bad thing to go one way that's or the other. That's the thing because sometimes you're enhancing, yeah, but it's for a good purpose. And sometimes exactly. you're using your own natural talent for a very evil purpose. Right, exactly. And sometimes, you know, something like the rings of power the elven yeah. rings of power, let's say. I mean, that is a type of industry, isn't it? That's a type of Certainly. enhancement of your natural device power in, through a tec- yeah, yeah, through technology. Through we would call it magic, but it's it's yeah. a type of technology. It's something they've developed, no doubt. And they can be used with bad motives. They can be used to dominate, as mm-hmm. Sauron did, and as the you know the the men did. Yeah. They can be used for a slightly less corrupt purpose, like the dwarves use them. True, self-serving, but not evil, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Or they could be used with a slightly purer motive. And I think let's talk about that. I think that is a good idea. So, yeah. hey, woohoo! I came up Excellent. with something off the top of my head. It happens sometimes <laughs> that's, still. That's great. Even that's after awesome. all these years, it still happens. <laughs> and, you know, if, if we can, maybe we should see if we can come up with a way to sort of. Wouldn't that be interesting to turn this into a graphic of some sort that we yeah, can. Yeah, mock uh, something up that we can we can Social post. media. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll do that. Well, folks, that's what you have to look forward to today in our reading. We're going to go ahead and get on with the reading because we are all about the books here at the Prancing Pony Podcast. That is right. You know we bring you other Tolkien stuff from time to time, but at heart, Alan and I are fans of Tolkien's books and books about Tolkien. That's our passion. And as you know, we read a lot of books in preparation for the show every week, though in fairness, this week we pretty much just read Tolkien's books. Uh, But if you'd like to get your hands on a book that we've mentioned, you're going to want to check out the official library page of our website, theprancingponypodcast.com. And there we have links to every book we've mentioned on the show. And there's a lot of other stuff on our website, too. 
show notes and yep. book links specific to each episode, outtakes, Prancing Pony Ponderings, and some other little extras. You'll also find a link to our online storefront at teespring.com stores slash PPP, where you can find shirts, mugs, stickers, and other great Prancing Pony podcast gear. So be sure to check that out. Well then, let's go ahead and get into our Tolkien Reading Day readings on nature versus industry. Right. We're going to start with the Silmarillion of Aule and Yavanna. Now, mm-hmm. this exchange from the Silmarillion, which takes place pretty close to the beginning of time, mm-hmm. sets up the theme of nature versus industry really throughout the Legendarium. We immediately see a push-pull between the two forces embodied in the oddest couple among the Valar. Sean, <laughs> can you go ahead and read for us? Yes, I can. <laughs> Now when Aule labored in the making of the dwarves, he kept this work hidden from the other Valar. But at last he opened his mind to Yvanna, and told her of all that had come to pass. Then Yvanna said to him, Eru is merciful. Now I see that thy heart rejoiceth, as indeed it may, for thou hast received not only forgiveness, but bounty. Yet because thou hiddest this thought from me until its achievement, thy children will have little love for the things of my love. They will love first the things made by their own hands, as doth their father. They will delve in the earth, and the things that grow and live upon the earth they will not heed. Many a tree shall feel the bite of their iron without pity. But Aule answered, That shall also be true of the children of Iluvatar, for they will eat and they will build. And though the things of thy realm have worth in themselves, and would have worth if no children were to come. Yet Eru will give them dominion, and they shall use all that they find in Arda, though not by the purpose of Eru, without respect or without gratitude. Mm. Not unless Melkor darken their hearts, said Yvanna. And she was not appeased, but grieved in heart, fearing what might be done upon Middle-earth in days to come. Therefore she went before Manwe, and she did not betray the counsel of Aule, But she said, King of Arda, is it true, as Aule hath said to me, that the children, when they come, shall have dominion over all the things of my labor, to do as they will therewith? It is true, said Manwe. But why dost thou ask? For thou hadst no need of the teaching of Aule. Then Yavanna was silent and looked into her own thought. And she answered, Because my heart is anxious, thinking of the days to come. All my works are dear to me. Is it not enough that Melkor should have marred so many? Shall nothing that I have devised be free from the dominion of others? If thou hadst thy will, what wouldst thou reserve? said Manwe. Of all thy realm, what dost thou hold dearest? All have their worth, said Yvanna, and each contributes to the worth of the others. But the Kelvar can flee or defend themselves, whereas the Olvar that grow cannot and among these I hold trees, dear. Long in the growing, swift shall they be in the felling, and unless they pay toll with fruit upon bough, little mourned in their passing. So I see in my thought, would that the trees might speak on behalf of all things that have roots and punish those that wrong them. This is a strange thought, said Manwe. Yet it was in the song, said Yvanna. For while thou wert in the heavens and with Ulmo built the clouds and poured out the rains, I lifted up the branches of great trees to receive them, and some sang to Iluvatar amid the wind and the rain. Then Manwe sat silent, and the thought of Yavanna that she had put into his heart grew and unfolded. 
and it was beheld by Iluvatar. Then it seemed to Manwe that the song rose once more about him, and he heeded now many things therein that, though he had heard them, he had not heeded before. And at last the vision was renewed, but it was not now remote, for he was himself within it, and yet he saw that all was upheld by the hand of Iluvatar, and the hand entered in, and from it came forth many wonders that had until then been hidden from him in the hearts of the Ainur. Then Manwe awoke, and he went down to Yavanna upon Azelahar, and he sat beside her beneath the two trees. And Manwe said, O Kementari, Eru hath spoken, saying, Do then any of the Valar suppose that I did not hear all the song, even the least sound of the least voice? Behold, when the children awake, then the thought of Yavanna will awake also, and it will summon spirits from afar. And they will go among the Kelvar and the Olvar, and some will dwell therein and be held in reverence, and their just anger shall be feared. For a time, while the firstborn are in their power, and while the secondborn are young. But dost thou not now remember, Kementari, that thy thought sang not always alone? Did not thy thought and mine meet also, so that we took wing together like great birds that soar above the clouds? That also shall come to be by the heed of Iluvatar, and before the children awake, there shall go forth with wings like the wind the eagles of the lords of the west. Then Yavanna was glad, and she stood up, reaching her arms towards the heavens, and she said, High shall climb the trees of Kementari, that the eagles of the king may house therein. But Manwe rose also, and it seemed that he stood to such a height that his voice came down to Yavanna as from the paths of the winds. Nay, he said. Only the trees of Aule will be tall enough. In the mountains the eagles shall house and hear the voices of those who call upon us. But in the forests shall walk the shepherds of the trees. Then Manwe and Yavanna parted for that time, and Yavanna returned to Aule, and he was in his smithy, pouring molten metal into a mold. Edu is bountiful, she said. Now let thy children beware for there shall walk a power in the forest whose wrath they will arouse at their peril. Nonetheless, they will have need of wood, said Aule, and he went on with his smith work. Ah, the classic line that prompted ah. so many jokes. Yep. Man, it's a great reading. It's been so long since we've touched on this. I have to say the language is so different. It is it, so it's different. It's been Man, a while. Sitting there and reading a long passage like that, I'm like, wow, this is, this oh, is so really. It hits you as just being so, not archaic, but, well, yeah, really, well, I guess it yeah, is. It, it is. It's, it's very archaic. It's very formal. You know, and it's not just yes. the thous and the shouldsts and all those. It's just the sentence structure, the way the word structure. order yeah. and everything. Yeah. Man. Right. Yeah. So we get Ali telling Yavanna, his wife, about the dwarves uh, before he tells any of the other Valar. Now, yeah. this tells me that although industry, here represented by Ali and nature, represented by Yavanna, aren't usually in sync with each other. They're not inherently enemies. No, that's Maybe true. Maybe they can not. work together, right? Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe they can work together or come together in, in some kind of harmony. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think Tolkien would have those two married if he, if he thought that no, these are just two no. opposing forces that are always going to clash. Right. I mean, that would be Melkor and, you know, uh, Varda. Yeah, exactly. Right. Those, that's never right. going to work. Right. They can they can work together. They're they're gonna fight yeah. like an old married couple or like Gandalf and Aragorn. Yeah. But they are gonna <laughs> the old the old married couple of the company. Yes. Right. 
I agree. I think it's it's really interesting. You know, one of the first things we get is Yvonne's concern. You know, she's just so she's really concerned, especially about Aule's children, the dwarves, and the fact that they won't heed her creation, her right. creations, all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Kelvar and the Olvar. Right? Yeah, yeah. But the reality is that she's kind of worried about this even broader, you know, too. Oh, she's, yeah. She's worried about the fact that the children of Iluvatar are going to have mm-hmm. dominion yeah. over her. Dominion. Over what she's created. And and Aule's right. response, you know, is dominion is kind of the thing. You know, Arda was created for the children of Iluvatar. For them. And, That's right. That's right. Yeah. And all of them, including dwarves, not just dwarves who are the adopted children, but also elves right. and men. They're, they're all mm-hmm. going to use it. And... That's right. Yvonne is concerned about this. She, she, and I, and I get that. I think she feels. Well, of course. She feels yeah. like, dude, why is why is everybody gonna you know mess up my stuff? You know. Right. Why am I working so hard to make all this? You know. Right. We can't keep anything nice. Right. <laughs> be we can't have nice this. things. Right. Exactly. I made all these trees. I made all these rabbits. Nobody's gonna take care of them. No, they're just they're just least of all like not crazy. your dwarves, honey. Everywhere. Yeah. Exactly. No, you're. Yeah, you can see her being a little sarcastic there. Yeah. So she calls for a referee, right? She wants to get a third <laughs> yeah, party involved totally. here. Totally. Uh, maybe a marriage counselor, maybe just somebody to solve this particular problem. I don't know. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. I do love her remark, though, that trees take a long time to grow, but a very short time to kill. That's a very mm-hmm. Tolkien comment. It is. So it yeah. is indeed a renewable resource, but it takes time to renew. And that's really mm-hmm. important, I think, to recognize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then she, of course, points out that unless they... I love the phrase, pay toll with fruit upon bough. There's that that. vivid, really Mm -hmm. kind of poetic expression talking about how trees are going to be seen only for what we get from them, what we can use them for, instead of being appreciated for their own existence, for their own beauty, for their own inherent value. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a really powerful, powerful way to say that. Yeah, it is. We see her talk about specifically, she she feels like the Kelvar, and that's what we might call the fauna. They can run or they can defend themselves. From the children yeah, yeah. of Iluvatar. But the Olvar, the flora, they can't. They're going to need somebody to protect no. them. That's right. And so Manway's like, what? <laughs> she says, come on. <laughs> Didn't you hear it? The Ents were in the music. You know, she, she had this idea <laughs> in the music of trees singing. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Manway didn't hear it, but somebody did. That's right. Iluvatar did. The most important person heard it. Yep. Yeah. So that's that's really cool because it does kind of show us that unlike dwarves, which uh, do appear based on the story to have been Aule's own thing, not in the music. Right. We see that that Ents were in the music and we see that Eagles were also in the music. And and I like this idea of Manway saying that, you know, they worked on them together. It was kind of a duet between Mm -hmm. Manway and Yvonne. (laughs) That that to me suggests that maybe Eagles and Ents are somehow alike. Maybe they're both kind of protectors over the natural world to some degree. I mean, obviously uh-huh. Ents are yeah, very clearly that. that, but maybe Eagles have a, a role to play there too. Maybe they do. If nothing else though, I would say that Eagles should be seen not only as purely emissaries of Manway, which we see them as, but mm-hmm. also as some sort of evidence or signs of this pact or agreement between Manway and Yavanna. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. A couple of other kind of cool things here. Yavanna, uh, she sees Iluvatar as being merciful in his treatment of Aule. Which, mm-hmm. you know, I'm reading between the lines there when she says he's merciful. I mean, that she's basically saying, you know, wow, he's letting you do that. You know, he's being tolerant of you. He's letting you slide. Yeah. Right. Exactly. He's giving you a little slap on the wrist. Mm-hmm. But then in his treatment of her, she feels like Iluvatar has been bountiful. He's actually rewarded yeah. her. 
Yeah. And maybe the reality is that Iluvatar has, has rewarded both of them and shown mercy to both of well, them. Well, sure. Right? He showed both mercy mm-hmm. and grace to both of them. To both um, of them, yeah. I can see her perspective, though. I mean, she's mm-hmm. she's done it the right way by going to Manwe. Uh, That's a good and, point. And obviously yeah. thus through him to Iluvatar, uh, whereas Ale had kind of done it the wrong way. Uh, Ale's the guy who asks humility. for forgiveness rather than permission. Exactly. And, he, and, he's trying to tell Yavanna that. It's mm-hmm. easier to ask forgiveness than permission. And I don't know. I don't want to ask for, for ask for forgiveness again from Iluvatar. Uh, right. You know, that's that's not an easy thing to do. Right. But no, she she follows the she follows the chain of command, so to speak, and uh, and <laughs> yeah, she, does she does get it because it's uh, yeah. it's it, it is right. And so now mm-hmm. we see, you know, as a result of all of this, this is why nature now has guardians to protect against yeah. destruction by industry, and that is going to include. That's right. Not only dwarves, but, you know, elves and men and, and make sure that um, we are not abusing our dominion over the earth. That's right. I mean, we still need wood and there's nothing wrong yeah. with using resources, but it does need to be done responsibly. I think that's, that's what, right. what Tolkien's really saying here. I mean, that's yeah. a very clear message. So, yeah. yeah. And so I kind of feel like if we're, if we're thinking back to the graph that you were talking about, the axis yeah, yeah. that we're talking about, I don't know, what do you think? Yovanda's worried about everything on the right side of the x-axis she's worried about uh, the domination motive she's worried about people just destroying her creations mm-hmm. just for no she's worried about right? dominion at all not just domination mm-hmm. but actual just dominion well that's she true. wants to see things uh, you know really on the on the far bottom line fully natural with no machine with no industry that would take over that would dominate I think she'd like that. I think her reference to Melkor tells me that she's really worried about people going overboard. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but you're right. I mean, I think in her ideal world, she would like nobody to to use anything. Maybe just break a little branch off a tree every now and then, and kind of right. She wants you know. to see things stay in the lower left hand quadrant. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, that's true. Aule is yeah. really he's top half of that graph. Clearly, he he's all about. Yeah. He's. He, don't you think? I, I think he'd be. As long as he's not on the right side, I don't think he, I, I, you know, he's not evil and he certainly doesn't want to see people using it for domination. Dominion is different than domination. Uh, but I think he would, he would extend up to the top half of, you know, the entire left-hand side of the graph. I think right? he would Both go, I think he would go farther. I think he would go a little right. bit to the right. I think he would. Yeah, maybe. I, maybe. I think he would probably be, a, I mean, he's the guy who asks for forgiveness, not permission. That's true. He's, that he's true. kind of a, he's, he's kind of a rule breaker. Yeah, so. he is. That's true. And we certainly know that his, shall we say, personal style uh, <laughs> may have been echoed in some of his followers. Uh, you know, that you is a very that good point. Yes. When you look yeah, at absolutely. who his followers are, I think you can always tell a teacher by his students, right? Yep. Feanor. Saruman. Saruman. Sauron. I mean, yeah. I mean, but others, not... I mean, you know, well, yeah, Telkar yeah. and yeah. Durin. And, you know, there's a lot of good ones, too. Matan. Right. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Nerdanel. Nerdanel was a sculptor. Uh, right. You know, that's right. There's a, there's a lot of good ones, but <laughs> there are. There but are. it is a path to corruption in a lot of cases. Yeah. And, it's an easy path if you're mm-hmm. not very very careful. Yeah. And it's a path that even Ali himself could have gone down. You know, we talked about yeah. this back in season one. It would have been very easy for him to react the same way Melkor had with the shame out of which mm-hmm. came a secret anger. Right. And that would have been a, a very natural response. Uh, instead, he chose humility and and confession. So. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Well, good. I think we'll see a lot more of that graph as we read along. But Yeah. Well, I know we kind of broke our rule of uh, not talking too much, but I think that was a good one well, because I think it does set up yeah. the whole conflict, really, in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. I agree. 
I'm glad we spent some time on it. Mm -hmm. But why don't we go ahead and move on to our second reading? Okay. Now, this next one is still going to be from the Silmarillion. We're still in the first age Uh here. This is actually going to be from the chapter of the Ruin of Doriath. Right. And here we're going to see the children of Yavanna, the ones we were just now talking about, get into a little fight with the children of Aule. And we're going to see, we're also going to see Thingol. Thingol sort of turn away from nature to kind of fall in love with industry in a way. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to go well for him. No, it won't. Why don't you go ahead and read that one? Long was their labor, and Thingol went down alone to their deep smithies and sat ever among them as they worked. In time, his desire was achieved, and the greatest of the works of elves and dwarves were brought together and made one. And its beauty was very great. For now the countless jewels of the Nauglamir did reflect and cast abroad in marvelous hues the light of the Silmaril amidmost. Then Thingol, being alone among them, made to take it up and clasp it about his neck. But the dwarves in that moment withheld it from him, and demanded that he yield it up to them, saying, By what right does the elven king lay claim to the Nauglamir? It was made by our fathers for Finrod Felagund, who is dead. It has come to him but by the hand of Hurin, the man of Dorloman who took it as a thief out of the darkness of Nargothron. But Thingol perceived their hearts, and saw well that desiring the Silmaril, they sought but a pretext and fair cloak for their true intent. And in his wrath and pride, he gave no heed to his peril, but spoke to them in scorn, saying, How do ye of uncouth race dare to demand aught of me, Elu Thingol, lord of Beleriand, whose life began by the waters of Cuivian in years uncounted, Are the fathers of the stunted people awoke? Sort of like calling Marty McFly chicken. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) May or may not leave that in. (laughs) Well said. And standing tall and proud among them, he bade them with shameful words be gone unrequited out of Doria. Then the lust of the dwarves was kindled to rage by the words of the king, and they rose up about him and laid hands on him and slew him as he stood. So died in the deep places of Menegroth, Elwe Singolo, king of Doriath, who alone of all the children of Iluvatar was joined with one of the Ainur, and he who, alone of the forsaken elves, had seen the light of the trees of Valinor, with his last sight gazed upon the Silmaril. Then the dwarves, taking the now Glamir, passed out of Menegroth and fled eastwards through Region. But tidings went swiftly through the forest, and few of that company came over Eros, for they were pursued to the death as they sought the eastward road, and the Nauglamir was retaken and brought back in bitter grief to Melian the queen. Yet two there were of the slayers of Thingol, who escaped from the pursuit on the eastern marches, and returned at last to their city far off in the Blue Mountains. And there in Nagrod they told somewhat of all that had befallen saying that the dwarves were slain in Doriath by command of the elven king, who thus would cheat them of their reward. Then great was the wrath and lamentation of the dwarves of Nogrod for the death of their kin and their great craftsmen, and they tore their beards and wailed, and long they sat taking thought for vengeance. It is told that they asked aid from Belagost, but it was denied them, and the dwarves of Belagost sought to dissuade them from their purpose, but their counsel was unavailing. And ere long a great host came forth from Nagrod, and crossing over Gelion, marched westward through Beleriand. Upon Doriath a heavy change had fallen, 
Melian sat long in silence beside Thingol the king, and her thought passed back into the starlit years and to their first meeting among the nightingales of Nan Elmoth in ages past. And she knew that her parting from Thingol was the forerunner of a greater parting, and that the doom of Doriath was drawing nigh. For Melian was of the divine race of the Valar, and she was a Maya of great power and wisdom. But for love of Elwe Singolo, she took upon herself the form of the elder children of Iluvatar, and in that union she became bound by the chain and trammels of the flesh of Arda. In that form she bore to him Luthien Tenuviel, and in that form she gained a power over the substance of Arda, and by the girdle of Melian was Doriath defended through long ages from the evils without. But now Thingol lay dead, and his spirit had passed to the halls of Mandos, and with his death a change came also upon Melian. Thus it came to pass that her power was withdrawn in that time from the forests of Neldoreth and Region, and Escaldoin the enchanted river spoke with a different voice, and Doriath lay open to its enemies. Thereafter Melian spoke to none save to Mablung only, bidding him take heed to the Silmaril, and to send word speedily to Baron and Luthien in Osirian, and she vanished out of Middle-earth and passed to the land of the Valar beyond the western sea to muse upon her sorrows in the gardens of Lorien whence she came, and this tale speaks of her no more. Thus it was that the host of the Naugrim crossing over Aros passed unhindered into the woods of Doriath, and none withstood them, for they were many and fierce, and the captains of the Grey Elves were cast into doubt and despair, and went hither and thither purposeless. But the dwarves held on their way, and passed over the great bridge and entered into Menegroth. And there befell a thing most grievous among the sorrowful deeds of the elder days. For there was battle in the thousand caves, and many elves and dwarves were slain, and it has not been forgotten. But the dwarves were victorious, and the halls of Thingol were ransacked and plundered. There fell Mablung of the heavy hand before the doors of the treasury wherein lay the Nauglamir, and the Silmaril was taken. At that time, Baron and Luthien yet dwelt in Tolgalan, the Green Isle, in the river Adurant, southernmost of the streams that, falling from Arid Linden, flowed down to join with Gelion. And their son, Dior Eluhil, had to wife Nimloth, kinswoman of Celeborn, prince of Doriath, who was wedded to the Lady Galadriel. The sons of Dior and Nimloth were Elured and Elurin, and a daughter also was born to them, and she was named Elwing, which is Star Spray for she was born on a night of stars, whose light glittered in the spray of the waterfall of Lanthir Lamath, beside her father's house. Now word went swiftly among the elves of Osirian that a great host of dwarves bearing gear of war had come down out of the mountains and passed over Gelion at the Fort of Stones. These tidings came soon to Baron and Luthien, and in that time also a messenger came to them out of Doriath, telling of what had befallen there. Then Baron arose and left Tolgallon, and summoning to him Dior his son, they went north to the river Askar, and with them went many of the green elves of Osirian. Thus it came to pass that when the dwarves of Nagrod, returning from Menegroth with diminished host, came again to Sarnathrod, they were assailed by unseen enemies. For as they climbed up Gelion's banks, burdened with the spoils of Doriath, suddenly all the woods were filled with the sound of elven horns, and shafts sped upon them from every side. There very many of the dwarves were slain in the first onset, but some, escaping from the ambush, held together and fled eastwards towards the mountains. And as they climbed the long slopes beneath Mount Dolmed, 
there came forth the shepherds of the trees, and they drove the dwarves into the shadowy woods of Arid Linden, whence it is said came never one to climb the high passes that led to their homes. And Aule and Yavanna watched all this, and Yavanna said, See, I told you. That's right. That's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. It's an interesting one. and Isn't it? You know, I- I'm going to go back to the very beginning here. You know, the setting of the Silmaril into the Nauglamir is kind of like the pinnacle of elven and dwarven engineering coming together. You know, yeah, this is sort of really the, is. This is the, 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 just the, the best technology each of those races has achieved. And I know I mean, I'm using the word technology in kind of a funny way because this is a fantasy. Craft, book, but, that's, but yeah. That's really what it is. It's craft. It's technology. Yeah. It's, it's, it's something that they've developed. It's invention. Their skill. And Ali, that's right. Yeah, skill. That's, mm-hmm. that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. And, um, and, but these things are not just beautiful. They, they have power. They have magical yes, power. Yes, they do. So, yes, they do. Um, well, especially and the so this, this really is the pinnacle of those two coming together. And so it is, a, mm-hmm. it is an example of both elven and dwarven yeah. Working industry together. in a sense. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And and the dwarves, of course, lay claim to the product of their industry. But really, we all know that's just a mask for lust and greed. They want the Silmaril. Yeah, for sure. Now, I think Thingol's, let's just call it his little racist tirade against the dwarves. <laughs> yeah, well, Who yeah. Are you of uncouth race. Like, yeah. dude, come on. Uncouth race? Yeah, I know. Come on. Yeah. I, I suppose that is quite bald racism right there. <laughs> but Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there's no beating around the bush on that one. No, no, there's not. It's that's an interesting clash between I I see that as an interesting kind of clash of nature and industry. He mm, needs mm-hmm. the dwarves to do the work for him. You know, their craftsmanship is superior to his. He can't yeah, do yeah, what yeah. they can do. And no. yet he still believes that he's better than them just because he's an elf. Yeah. Because of who he is by his nature, so to speak. Yeah, it is. that's that's interesting. It's disgusting. It's also interesting. It is. Thingol is a character that I swear that the more I read. I know he's, he does some like great him. things. He starts yeah. he starts out so great, but yeah, man, he does. does he fall. Boy, and, he does. Yeah. It's a much more subtle fall, but he falls. It is, yeah. And it is, it's sorrowful, really, because he has every reason to maintain not falling, right? To, to stay yeah. high, to stay right. Yeah. He's married to he's Melian. He's married to Melian. The you know, Maya. He's got the, yeah. He's got the light of, of, of the trees in her face, you know? Yeah. That's what he wakes yeah. up next to in the morning. I mean, That's he's an elf, so he doesn't sleep much, but still, when he does sleep. <laughs> That's true, right. Well, you know, speaking of that light, I mean, Thingol's obsession with the Silmaril, which is really a, a product of Noldoran industry, like you talked about, shows how far he has fallen. You know, the love that mm-hmm. he once felt for the two trees, now he gives that to the Nauglamir, to this yeah. result of craft. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that his last sight before he dies is the Silmaril, that's very yeah. telling. You know that. that well, it's better than his last sight being. Oh, look! That's my intestines on the floor. I mean, I, I, I suppose I'd, I'd probably <laughs> I rather suppose, look at somewhere else too. I suppose that's true. I but, mean, he was slain where he stood. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what the dwarves like? One said, "You know, lift me up onto your shoulders." <laughs> I mean, <laughs> hey, hey. Otherwise, hey. he's bleeding out from the shins. You know, from I mean, shins. it's because yeah. uh, he's tall, right? I mean, let's not forget. I'm not. I'm not just mocking the fact that dwarves are short. I mean, I am doing that. You're not just but, mocking, but you are. I'm not just doing that. <laughs> I'm reminding you that Thingol was like the tallest person that's right. ever. Yeah, that's ever. True. He yeah. was something like eight foot tall, basically. I mean, he's a giant. He was really so, tall. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be able to stab him above anything more than like his waist. I mean, he's just right. a super tall dude. So maybe they did stab him in the waist. I don't know. Maybe. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah there are some important bits around there. That's a terrible <laughs> way to die. There are. There, there are. <laughs> 
But yeah, he dies just gazing upon the Silmaril. And yeah. that tells us poetically that his last thoughts yes. are with the Silmaril. He's not exactly thinking of not. he's not thinking of Melian. His kingdom, his people, his Melian, Luthien. No. 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 Yeah, none of that. And then we get the dwarves marching through Doriath, you know, uh, kind of tromping through the forest, probably hacking at things as they go. Oh, yeah. You could probably, probably assume. Just, I need to sharpen my axe on this living tree. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It is just the host of Nagrod. We do have to acknowledge right. that. Belagost He's, said, uh-uh, not right. us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Belagost almost played the role of the Teleri in uh, the, the way they responded to the, uh, yeah, the dwarves you're of right. Nagrod, right? Yeah, Remember you're right. Remember when the Teleri they, they, told Feanor... A friend can tell a friend when they're being right. an idiot. Don't do you know? this. This is a mistake. Don't do this. And, you shouldn't and do this. like, nope, I'm doing it. That's right. And well, Nagrod does it, and that's a mistake. I'll kill you. Yeah. 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 At least Nagrod didn't attack Belagost on the way. Dwarves are smarter than the Feanorians. We know that. It's the, that's, again, low bar. It's a low bar. <laughs> <laughs> Wiser, I should say. Not smart, smart, but not wise. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah what is exactly. it? Uh, Noldor means the wise ones in the sense of uh, clever, not possessing, not being. Not uh, possessing sagacity. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So Melian withdraws her magia. Now, this is sort of a machine, isn't it? Right. I mean, that's it's her innate gift. But that's one of those things because it's sort of this artificial thing that Mm -hmm. changes what is around you. Is that industry? But that's where we come into that that X and Y thing, isn't it? Because. So you're talking about the girdle, right? So you're, you're right, talking about the, the idea of her, her kind of withdrawing the girdle from the forest and it's not right. protected anymore. That's an interesting question. Is that, is that, is her girdle, is it nature or industry? I guess it is her innate talent, isn't it? Yeah, it is her but, innate talent and she's not using it to dominate. True. That's true. She's, she's using, using it, it to, protect. to protect. Yeah. So it, it is, I mean, I, I think it's definitely on the left side because it is yeah, to protect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's something it's good. Clearly it's a good motive. Side. But it's uh, got to be at least at the middle line on the yeah, vertical axis yeah. there. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there's, I don't know. It, it's, yeah. Oh, that's, that is a tough one. It, it's somewhere, that somewhere is in the middle isn't of it? a natural machine. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it is definitely artificial in the sense that it, it's something that, well, it's artificial because it's, it's not inherent, but it's a power that she has and the power is inherent. So. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Know. It's like Boy, she's using her power indeed. to do something that is unnatural for the forest. Unnatural for her. Well, Argo. right. It is unnatural for the forest. Mm-hmm. That's true. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. interesting. Now, in contrast to, uh, well, let's just call him Papa Thingol, Luthien and Baron are, are kind <laughs> of living. I'm picturing it with like blue hair and, and blue yeah. skin. And like the little Papa red. Uh, the little but a really tall cap. Smurf. <laughs> la, 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 la. He's. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Baron and Luthien are kind of living the most nature-oriented life imaginable, I have to think, on, on Tall Gallon. I mean, Tall Gallon. Well, let's means, hope they're not naturists. I mean, you know, hey, if anybody's going to be naturists, they're... Well, that's true. If anybody can be, it's them. Yeah, they're, they, they've been through enough, okay? Come on, let's yeah. let them have their fun. That's what okay, they want to do. Enough. They're both young, good-looking They're both kids. consenting adults, and yeah, yeah that's right. Let, they do have kids, so that, <laughs> maybe not. Yeah, they, maybe that's a bad idea. <laughs> But, uh, but no, they're, they're definitely living Think sort of a nature Think this through, life. Sean. Think this through, man. I know, I no, know. We it's, don't. It's like, no. Nope. But they are living a very nature-oriented life. You're right. They have they're, to be, yeah. They, they're yeah, living yeah, on the yeah. green aisle. They're not, they've let go of all that stuff. They, you know, they, yeah, they won did. the Silmaril. They did not want the Silmaril for any, no. anything on the right side of the axis. They did not want to dominate. No. They did not want anything. They just wanted each other. They wanted their love. It's, 
the mm-hmm. purest motive imaginable, I think. And so that's right. They have they were able to let go of the Silmarillion and just live this idyllic life. And yeah. that's kind of cool. I agree. I agree. But then, of course, you get the dwarves, Ale's children. We talked about this right at the end of the reading, being attacked by the shepherds of the trees, the Ents. Mm-hmm. These are Yavanna's children. So, oh boy. Yeah, they're they're having a little chat about this. But interesting, the dwarves aren't being attacked for despoiling the forest as far as we know. Um, it's as though the atrocities they've committed on this campaign, right, slaying all these people in, in Menegroth, that that's enough to arouse the anger of the Ents. Unless Could there's be. just some things yeah. we didn't see. I mean, they they could, like you said, maybe maybe they're sharpening some axes and breaking some branches as they go. They're probably not yeah. very delicate about the way they go through the forest. But yeah, we don't see that they were doing anything particularly bad to the forest. It does yeah, seem as though the Ents are rising up uh, because of just of these other things they've done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Agreed. It's interesting. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and move on to our next reading. And this one is going to come from Unfinished Tales, and this is specifically from the history of Galadriel and Celeborn. Now, you might think that this is a kind of an unorthodox choice to illustrate the struggle of nature versus industry, but stick with me because I do think it's in there. Okay. We're going to see Galadriel in the Second Age, and we're going to see sort of the aftermath of what she did in the First Age, which we learned was that she was a pupil of both Aule and Yavanna. So she kind of has both sides of the equation in her. Hmm. We're going to see her found two kingdoms. She founds Aregion, which is certainly a place of industry. And we're going to yeah. see her found Lorinand or Lothlorien, which is a place of nature. That's true. And along the way, we're going to see the Eldar struggle with temptation by Sauron's industrial advancement and eventually open war between the elves and Sauron's war machine. And then, of course, the dwarves show up. It seems that not all industry is inherently evil, but it is very corruptible. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be something we notice. We also see Celeborn's opinions about the stuff that happened in our last reading, and we get to read about Celebrimbo's horrible death again. <laughs> That's always worth a few laughs. Now, yeah, according to Christopher Tolkien, this section is something that's retold from a very hasty outline that his father had completed. There mm-hmm. are a lot of bracketed comments and footnotes. I mean, it is unfinished yeah. tales after all, but I'm going to be skipping over those. I'm going to try and keep it to yeah. uh, the main points, and it, it is, it's definitely an outline. So, so mm-hmm. keep that in mind as we're going. Yeah. And the section actually starts with a paragraph about Galadriel's family, her marriage to Celeborn, and her children, Celebrion and Amroth. Uh, in this version, Amroth's parentage was changed later on, so Celebrion ended up being her only child. Right. Yeah. And then that's, I guess, another thing to keep in mind is that, as with so much with the history of Galadriel and Celeborn, <laughs> there's a lot here that's yeah. not entirely canon. It and didn't we're not stick. Really sure where he, right. Yeah. So... But I think that the main points are, are going to be, you know, illustrative here. So I think so, too. I'll go ahead and start reading. All right. But eventually, Galadriel became aware that Sauron again, as in the ancient days of the captivity of Melkor, had been left behind. Or rather, since Sauron had as yet no single name, and his operations had not been perceived to proceed from a single evil spirit, prime servant of Melkor, she perceived that there was an evil controlling purpose abroad in the world and that it seemed to proceed from a source further to the east, beyond Eriador and the Misty Mountains. Celeborn and Galadriel therefore went eastwards, about the year 700 of the Second Age, and established the primarily, but by no means solely, Noldoran realm of Eregion. It may be that Galadriel chose it because she knew of the dwarves of Khazad-dûm, Moria. There were, and always remained, some dwarves on the eastern side of Ered Lindon where the very ancient mansions of Nagrod and Belagost had been, 
not far from Nenuyal, but they had transferred most of their strength to Casadum. Celeborn had no liking for dwarves of any race, as he showed to Gimli and Lothlorien, and never forgave them for their part in the destruction of Doriath, but it was only the host of Nagrod that took part in that assault, and it was destroyed in the Battle of Sarn-Athrod. The dwarves of Belagost were filled with dismay at the calamity and fear for its outcome, and this hastened their departure eastwards to Khazad-dûm. Thus the dwarves of Moria may be presumed to have been innocent of the ruin of Doriath and not hostile to the elves. In any case, Galadriel was more far-sighted in this than Celeborn, and she perceived from the beginning that Middle-earth could not be saved from the residue of evil that Morgoth had left behind him, save by a union of all the peoples who were in their way and in their measure opposed to him. She looked upon the dwarves also with the eye of a commander, seeing in them the finest warriors to pit against the orcs. Moreover, Galadriel was a Noldo, and she had a natural sympathy with their minds and their passionate love of crafts of hand, a sympathy much greater than that found among many of the Eldar. The dwarves were the children of Aule, and Galadriel, like others of the Noldor, had been a pupil of Aule and Yavanna in Valinor. Galadriel and Celeborn had in their company a Noldoran craftsman named Celebrimbor. Celebrimbor had an almost dwarvish obsession with crafts, and he soon became the chief artificer of Eregion, entering into a close relationship with the dwarves of Khazad-dûm, among whom his greatest friend was Narvi. Both elves and dwarves had great profit from this association, so that Eregion became far stronger, and Khazad-dûm far more beautiful, than either would have done alone. The building of the chief city of Eregion, Austin Evil, was begun in about the year 750 of the Second Age. News of these things came to the ears of Sauron and increased the fears that he felt concerning the coming of the Numenorians to Lindon and the coasts further south, and their friendship with Gilgalad. And he heard tell also of Aldarion, son of Tarmanildur, the king of Numenor, now become a great shipbuilder who brought his vessels to Haven far down into the Harad. Sauron therefore left Eriador alone for a while, and he chose the land of Mordor, as it was afterwards called, for a stronghold as a counter to the threat of the Numenorean landings. When he felt himself to be secure, he sent emissaries to Eriador, and finally, in about the year 1200 of the Second Age, came himself, wearing the fairest form that he could contrive. But in the meantime, the power of Galadriel and Celeborn had grown, and Galadriel, assisted in this by her friendship with the dwarves of Moria, had come into contact with the Nandarin realm of Lorinend on the other side of the Misty Mountains. This was peopled by those elves who forsook the great journey of the Eldar from Cuivianen and settled in the woods of the Vale of Anduin, and it extended into the forests on both sides of the great river, including the region where afterwards was Dol Guldur. These elves had no princes or rulers, and led their lives free of care while all Morgoth's power was concentrated in the northwest of Middle-earth. But many Sindar and Noldor came to dwell among them, and their cinderizing under the impact of Beleriandic culture began. It is not made clear when this movement into Lorinen took place. It may be that they came from Eregion by way of Khazad-dûm and under the auspices of Galadriel. Galadriel, striving to counteract the machinations of Sauron, was successful in Lorinen, while in Lindon Gilgalad shut out Sauron's emissaries and even Sauron himself. But Sauron had better fortune with the Noldor of Eregion, and especially with Celebrimbor, who desired in his heart to rival the skill and fame of Feanor. In Eregion, Sauron posed as an emissary of the Valar, sent by them to Middle-earth, thus anticipating the Istari, or ordered by them to remain there to give aid to the elves. He perceived at once that Galadriel would be his chief adversary and obstacle, 
and he endeavored therefore to placate her, bearing her scorn with outward patience and courtesy. Sauron used all his arts upon Celebrimbor and his fellow smiths, who had formed a society or brotherhood, very powerful in Eregion, the Gwaithi Myrdain, but he worked in secret, unknown to Galadriel and Celeborn. Before long, Sauron had the Gwaithi Myrdain under his influence, for at first they had great profit from his instruction in secret matters of their craft. So great became his hold on the Myrdain that at length he persuaded them to revolt against Galadriel and Celeborn and to seize power in Eregion, and that was at some time between 1350 and 1400 of the Second Age. Galadriel thereupon left Eregion and passed through Khazad-dûm to Lorinand, taking with her Amroth and Celebrion. But Celeborn would not enter the mansions of the dwarves, and he remained behind in Eregion, disregarded by Celebrimbor. In Lorinand, Galadriel took up rule and defense against Sauron. Sauron himself departed from Eregion about the year 1500, after the Myrdain had begun the making of the Rings of Power. Now Celebrimbor was not corrupted in heart or faith, but had accepted Sauron as what he posed to be. And when at length he discovered the existence of the One Ring, he revolted against Sauron, and went to Lorinan to take counsel once more with Galadriel. They should have destroyed all the Rings of Power at this time, but they failed to find the strength. Galadriel counseled him that the three rings of the elves should be hidden, never used, and dispersed, far from Eregion where Sauron believed them to be. It was at that time that she received Nenya, the White Ring, from Celebrimbor, and by its power the realm of Lorinand was strengthened and made beautiful. But its power upon her was great also, and unforeseen, for it increased her latent desire for the sea and for return into the west, so that her joy in Middle-earth was diminished. Celebrimbor followed her counsel that the Ring of Air and the Ring of Fire should be sent out of Eregion, and he entrusted them to Gilgalad and Lindon. It is said here that at this time Gilgalad gave Narya, the Red Ring, to Círdan, Lord of the Havens, but later in the narrative there is a marginal note that he kept in himself until he set out for the War of the Last Alliance. When Sauron learned of the repentance and revolt of Celebrimbor, his disguise fell, and his wrath was revealed, and gathering a great force he moved over Kalinarthon, Rohan, to the invasion of Eriador in the year 1695. When news of this reached Gilgalad, he sent out a force under Elrond half-Elven, but Elrond had far to go, and Sauron turned north and made it once for Aragion. The scouts and vanguard of Sauron's host were already approaching when Celeborn made a sortie and drove them back. But though he was able to join his force to that of Elrond, they could not return to Aragion, for Sauron's host was far greater than theirs, great enough both to hold them off and closely to invest Aragion. At last the attackers broke into Aragion with ruin and devastation, and captured the chief object of Sauron's assault, the house of the Myrdain, where were their smithies and their treasures. Celebrimbor, desperate, himself withstood Sauron on the steps of the great door of the Myrdain, but he was grappled and taken captive, and the house was ransacked. There Sauron took the nine rings and other lesser works of the Myrdain, but the seven and the three he could not find. Then Celebrimbor was put to torment, and Sauron learned from him where the seven were bestowed. This Celebrimbor revealed because neither the seven nor the nine did he value as he valued the three. The seven and the nine were made with Sauron's aid, whereas the three were made by Celebrimbor alone, with a different power and purpose. Concerning the three rings, Sauron could learn nothing from Celebrimbor, and he had him put to death, but he guessed the truth, that the three had been committed to elvish guardians, and that must mean to Galadriel and Gilgalad. In black anger he turned back to battle, and bearing as a banner Celebrimbor's body hung upon a pole, shot through with orc arrows, he turned upon the forces of Elrond. 
Elrond had gathered such a few of the elves of Eregion as had escaped, but he had no force to withstand the onset. He would indeed have been overwhelmed had not Sauron's host been attacked in the rear, for Durin sent out a force of dwarves from Khazad-dûm, and with them came elves of Lorinend led by Amroth. Elrond was able to extricate himself, but he was forced away northwards, and it was at that time that he established a refuge and stronghold at Imladris, Rivendell. Sauron withdrew the pursuit of Elrond and turned upon the dwarves and the elves of Lorinend, whom he drove back, but the gates of Moria were shut, and he could not enter. Ever afterwards, Moria had Sauron's hate, and all orcs were commanded to harry dwarves whenever they might. Despite the fact that we normally associate Galadriel with Lothlorien, which here is called Lorinand, the very first realm that she established in this version was Eregion, so she's mm-hmm. really associated with industry as much as she is with nature, huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We kind of see both sides of that with her. We also get the reason for Eregion being where it was, right? Close to Moria. Yeah. You know, at least yeah. that's what's believed. Right. We get Celeborn's own little bit of racism. I guess he learned from Thingol. And he's got uh, he's got some strong thoughts about the fall of Doriath, the crimes of the dwarf right. of Nagrod. There's yeah, a little bit yeah. of a grudge there. He's certainly not breaking any molds by being a dwarf-hating elf. No, that's that's pretty much just par for the course there. Now, yeah. Galadriel, as a Noldo, doesn't share her husband's prejudices. And in fact, she right. has something in common with the dwarves because they're both pupils of Aule. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I think it's really important that we see that she and other Noldor were considered pupils of both Aule and Yavanna. I think yeah, yeah. that's a dead horse I'm happy to keep beating because it does show that <laughs> industry and nature can come together. True. We see that Celebrimbor also has something dwarvish about him. He's another Noldo, of course, and he's got mm-hmm. a dwarvish obsession with crafts. That's true. And we should also notice the Numenorians make an appearance here through Tar Maneldur and his son Aldarian. Now, we're not going to get into Aldarian's story here, maybe a few seasons from now when we get into that, but uh, mm-hmm. he was known as a mariner and a great shipbuilder. And his story, which is also in Unfinished Tales, we learned that he expanded Numenor's shipbuilding industry. Mm. And so while we're never told this explicitly, the Numenorians are really the closest thing to an industrial society of men that we find in Middle Earth. That's true. And if I'm remembering yeah. that story of Aldarion and Arendis, th- there is some stuff about the forests and oh, yeah. all the deforestation all the trees no that cut down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. There's another industry Absolutely. versus nature thing in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We couldn't read everything related to the topic, folks. I mean, we just, it would be a four hour. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we picked a few. Yeah. As it is, it's still going to be long, but yeah. Yeah. What else do we get? We get the founding of Mordor. That's obviously yeah, the center yeah. of Sauron's machine. And by the time we see it in the Third Age, it'll be sort of oh, an yeah. industrial wasteland. Exactly. We see Sauron sort of hiding himself under the fairest form he could contrive. I think that's, a, you know, just a use mm-hmm. of his powers to dominate, I would say. Right, exactly. It may be an inherent power, but he's using it to dominate. Mm-hmm. So it's on the, the right end on the right of side, the chart, yeah. mm-hmm. even if it's in the middle on the vertical mm-hmm. scale. Yeah. We see Galadriel sort of leveraging her relationship with the Dwarves of Moria. Uh, she's actually kind of using them to make contact with Lorinend. Uh, and yeah. so, uh, I don't know if there's a whole lot there, but, you know, certainly the, the elves of Lorinend are kind of living a, a very nature-oriented oh, life yeah. there, aren't they? Yeah, there's there's not much of a developed civilization. There's no ruler, sort of a, a utopia. An anarcho-syndicalist mm-hmm. commune. We sort of take it in turns to be an executive of the week. <laughs> Sorry. And yep. Galadriel comes over there. How'd you become queen then? <laughs> she, well, I didn't she, vote for you. <laughs> you don't vote for a queen. You don't, you don't vote for queens. 
Yeah, so <laughs> she goes there to contest Sauron's... Often king of Tyrion. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> uh, she contests Sauron's machinations, sort of a, a cold war between nature and industry here, really, between the elves and Sauron seems to begin, doesn't it? Mm-hmm, yeah. So Sauron goes to Eregion. He knows that that's where he's going to find his... Yeah. his kind of foothold with the elves, mm-hmm. you know, he's, yeah, that's right. he's, he's really going to appeal to their desire to learn from his craftsmanship. And right. Uh, of course he finds friends among Feanor's peeps, right? You Gee, know, big surprise. Like, thwack. Yeah. yeah. But I do really like the clarification that Celebrimbor was tricked. He wasn't corrupt. Oh yeah. Right. You know, he, he never really became evil. He was just no fooled. So to um, those of you who've played the um, the Shadow of Mordor games, really seriously, not even close to canon, please just understand that's not. I thought they make Celebrimbor more evil in that. Yeah, they really do. Very just. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's really unfortunate. Yeah. I never played that game. Just wait till you find out what they do with Isildur. He becomes a ringwraith. He's a ringwraith, isn't he? I remember. Yeah, that yeah. I, I, don't get me started. Anyway, let's get back on track. Um, <laughs> let's back on track. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Let, let's talk about the Gwythi Myrdine. They're sort of an right, industrial right. guild. Of oh, Aragian. they're very much. Yeah, craftsman's yeah. guild. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we go on the other side of the mountains. Lornan becomes the place of defense against Sauron's machine. Uh, Celebrimbor travels there to take counsel. Nenya, which is of course a product of industry, right? This is one of the Elven Rings. It does mm-hmm. make Lorinen more beautiful. So industry is making nature more beautiful. Mm-hmm. But we also know that it pulls Galadriel in two directions. And we see that struggle when we meet her in fellowship, don't we? That's really true. You know, so we see there that Galadriel starts out using this machine, right, for yeah, a good yeah. purpose. So she's in the top left quadrant. Right. When she starts out using her ring of power. By the time we see her with Frodo, we do see her starting to struggle with you know, the idea of maybe she's going to, you know, maybe she would want the one ring. Maybe she would want to dominate. That would push her more towards that right quadrant. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we definitely see some struggle in her. Absolutely. We do. We see this cold war become a hot war when Sauron Mm -hmm. and Kalinarthon. Not to put too fine a point on the nature thing, but Kalinarthon means green region and Eregion means land of Holly. So just going to throw that out there. These are these are places nature very associated titles. with the nature that's found there. Yep. Absolutely. And it definitely becomes a hot war if you're poor Celebrimbor, uh, whose, hmm. you know, body pierced with all those arrows is now hanging as a banner. Uh, but look, the dwarves of Khazad-dûm and the elves of Lorinand are fighting side by side, almost, Sean, as if industry and nature can work together. You know, it's almost like, <laughs> it's almost. almost like we pick passages that would illustrate that. You'd think that. Pretty cool. Speaking of readings, uh, we're going to move on to our next one, which is going to come from the Akalabath. As we saw in the last reading, the Numenorians are the closest thing to an industrialized society of men that we see in the Legendarium with their advanced technology and their massive ships. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, all their technology can't save them from death. But that in itself is a struggle between nature and industry. It's mm-hmm. their attempt to overcome their own nature, their own human, their own mortal nature with mm-hmm. devices that industry has developed, huh? Absolutely. And here we're going to see the last step on that road. Here's where we're going to see the Numenorians actually sail their fleet of, let's just call them technologically advanced warships into the West, attempting yeah, yeah. to wrest immortality from the Valar by, by force and domination. Absolutely. Putting them in that top right quadrant, no doubt. Absolutely. Yep. And we are going to see not only their human nature and just the pure inevitability of their mortality, but also nature itself is against them here. And I love that aspect of this, of this section here. 
All right, I'm going to go ahead and pick up there. Now, aforetime in the Isle of Numenor, the weather was ever apt to the needs and liking of men, rain and due season and ever in measure, and sunshine, now warmer, now cooler, and winds from the sea. And when the wind was in the west, it seemed to many that it was filled with a fragrance, fleeting but sweet, heart-stirring, as of flowers that bloom forever in undying meads and have no names on mortal shores. But all this was now changed, for the sky itself was darkened, and there were storms of rain and hail in those days, and violent winds. And ever and anon a great ship of the Numenorians would founder and return not to haven, though such a grief had not till then befallen them since the rising of the star. And out of the west there would come at times a great cloud in the evening, shaped as it were an eagle, with pinions spread to the north and the south, and slowly it would loom up, blotting out the sunset, and then uttermost night would fall upon Numenor. And some of the eagles bore lightning beneath their wings, and thunder echoed between sea and cloud. Then men grew afraid. Behold, the eagles of the lords of the west, they cried. The eagles of Manwe are come upon Numenor. And they fell upon their faces. Then some few would repent for a season, but others hardened their hearts, and they shook their fists at heaven, saying, The lords of the west have plotted against us. They strike first. The next blow shall be ours. These words the king himself spoke, but they were devised by Sauron. Now the lightnings increased and slew men upon the hills and in the fields and in the streets of the city, and a fiery bolt smote the dome of the temple and shore it asunder, and it was wreathed in flame. But the temple itself was unshaken, and Sauron stood there upon the pinnacle and defied the lightning and was unharmed. And in that hour men called him a god and did all that he would. When therefore the last portent came, they heeded it little, for the land shook under them, and a groaning as of thunder underground was mingled with the roaring of the sea, and smoke issued from the peak of the Meneltarma. But all the more did Arpharazon press on with his armament. In that time the fleets of the Numenorians darkened the sea upon the west of the land, and they were like an archipelago of a thousand isles. Their masts were as a forest upon the mountains, and their sails like a brooding cloud, and their banners were golden and black. And all things waited upon the word of Arpharazon. And Sauron withdrew into the inmost circle of the temple, and men brought him victims to be burned. Then the eagles of the lords of the west came up out of the dayfall, and they were arrayed as for battle, advancing in a line, the end of which diminished beyond sight. And as they came, their wings spread ever wider, grasping the sky. But the west burned red behind them, and they glowed beneath, as though they were lit with a flame of great anger, so that all Numenor was illumined as with a smoldering fire. And men looked upon the faces of their fellows, and it seemed to them that they were red with wrath. Then Arpharazon hardened his heart, and he went aboard his mighty ship, Alcarandas, Castle of the Sea. Many oared it was, and many masted, golden and sable, and upon it the throne of Arpharazon was set. Then he did on his panoply and his crown, and let raise his standard, and he gave the signal for the raising of the anchors, and in that hour the trumpets of Numenor outrang the thunder. Thus the fleets of the Numenorians moved against the menace of the west, and there was little wind, but they had many oars and many strong slaves to row beneath the lash. The sun went down, and there came a great silence, 
Darkness fell upon the land, and the sea was still, while the world waited for what should betide. Slowly the fleets passed out of the sight of the watchers in the havens, and their lights faded, and night took them, and in the morning they were gone. For a wind arose in the east, and it wafted them away, and they broke the ban of the Valar and sailed into forbidden seas, going up with war against the deathless, to wrest from them everlasting life within the circles of the world. But the fleets of our Pharazan came up out of the deeps of the sea and encompassed Avalone and all the isle of Aresia and the Eldar Morn, for the light of the setting sun was cut off by the cloud of the Numenorians, and at last Arpharazon came even to Amon, the blessed realm, and the coasts of Valinor. And still all was silent, and doom hung by a thread. For Arpharazon wavered at the end, and almost he turned back. His heart misgave him when he looked upon the soundless shores and saw Teniquatil shining, whiter than snow, colder than death, silent, immutable, terrible as the shadow of the light of Iluvatar. But pride was now his master, and at last he left his ship and strode upon the shore, claiming the land for his own, if none should do battle for it. And a host of the Numenorians encamped in might about Tuna, whence all the Eldar had fled. Then Manwe upon the mountain called upon Iluvatar, and for that time the Valar laid down their government of Arda. But Iluvatar showed forth his power, and he changed the fashion of the world, and a great chasm opened in the sea between Numenor and the deathless lands, and the waters flowed down into it, and the noise and smoke of the cataracts went up to heaven, and the world was shaken. And all the fleets of the Numenorians were drawn down into the abyss, and they were drowned and swallowed up forever. But Arpharazon the king, and the mortal warriors that had set foot upon the land of Ammon, were buried under falling hills. There it is said that they lie imprisoned, in the caves of the forgotten, until the last battle and the day of doom. But the land of Ammon and Aresia of the Eldar were taken away and removed beyond the reach of men forever, and Andor, the land of gift, Numenor of the kings, Elenna of the star of Eärendil, was utterly destroyed. For it was nigh to the east of the great rift, and its foundations were overturned, and it fell and went down into darkness and is no more. And there is not now upon earth any place abiding where the memory of a time without evil is preserved. For Iluvatar cast back the great seas west of Middle-earth, and the empty lands east of it, and new lands and new seas were made, and the world was diminished, for Valinor and Eresia were taken from it into the realm of hidden things. In an hour unlooked for by men this doom befell, on the nine and thirtieth day since the passing of the fleets. Then suddenly fire burst for the men El Tarma, and there came a mighty wind and a tumult of the earth, and the sky reeled and the hills slid, and Numenor went down into the sea, with all its children and its wives and its maidens and its ladies proud, and all its gardens and its halls and its towers, its tombs and its riches and its jewels and its webs and its things painted and carven, and its laughter and its mirth and its music, its wisdom and its lore, they vanished forever. And last of all, the mounting wave, green and cold and plumed with foam, climbing over the land, took to its bosom Tar Miriel, the queen, fairer than silver or ivory or pearls. 
too late she strove to ascend the steep ways of the Menotarma to the holy place, for the waters overtook her, and her cry was lost in the roaring of the wind. But whether or no it were that Amandil came indeed to Valinor, and Manwe hearkened to his prayer, by grace of the Valar, Elendil and his sons and their people were spared from the ruin of that day. For Elendil had remained in Romenna, refusing the summons of the king when he set forth to war, and avoiding the soldiers of Sauron that came to seize him and drag him to the fires of the temple, he went aboard his ship and stood off from the shore, waiting on the time. There he was protected by the land from the great draft of the sea that drew all towards the abyss, and afterwards he was sheltered from the first fury of the storm. But when the devouring wave rolled over the land, and Numenor toppled to its fall, then he would have been overwhelmed, and would have deemed it the lesser grief to perish, for no wrench of death could be more bitter than the loss and agony of that day. The great wind took him, wilder than any wind that men had known, roaring from the west, and it swept his ships far away, and it rent their sails and snapped their masts, hunting the unhappy men like straws upon the water. Nine ships there were, four for Elendil, and for Isildur three, and for Anarion two, and they fled before the black gale out of the twilight of doom into the darkness of the world, and the deeps rose beneath them in towering anger, and waves like unto mountains moving with great caps of writhen snow bore them up amid the wreckage of the clouds, and after many days cast them away upon the shores of Middle-earth. And all the coasts and seaward regions of the western world suffered great change and ruin in that time, for the seas invaded the lands, and shores foundered, and ancient isles were drowned, and new isles were uplifted, and hills crumbled, and rivers were turned into strange courses. Wow. Man, wow. that's a, Man. such a powerful passage. Isn't it? Mm. And, yeah, there is a lot here. I mean... But we can't talk about all of it, right? We're going to no, keep this brief, because it's Tolkien we reading can't. day, not Alan and Sean talking day. I know, I know. But, I mean, we see that nature used to be on their side. They used to have this great weather. Now, yeah. weather is going to be the chief weapon of the Valar against them, right? Lightning. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Eagle clouds, right? Symbolic of Valar. Manway, obviously. But remember our first reading? They were made with Yavanna's help. So mm -hmm. they can also be seen as protectors of nature, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've got kind of a struggle here between the Valar sort of representing nature and Sauron, mm -hmm. who's basically sort of an industrial warlord. Now, I realize that yeah, yeah. it's not exactly the the took the, the kind of the, the path he took with the Numenorians. He kind of corrupted no. them, them in other ways, but still, that's who he is. And, yeah, and it is. That, that is mm -hmm. what's going on here. That's kind of the nature of this struggle. Mm -hmm. And Arpharazan's massive fleet is an industrial marvel in itself. It's the technological wonder of the Second Age. Mm -hmm. I mean, he has a castle of the sea. <laughs> that okay, name's pretty telling, yeah. It is pretty Alcarandus, cool. I mean, granted, yeah. that's some sort of poetic exaggeration, I'm sure, but sure. it's still going to be a massive ship, no doubt. Mm -hmm, definitely. And then we get this bit about the Numenorean trumpets outringing the thunder. I mean, that is just a classic struggle against nature mm -hmm. moment. And it, and again, it is. Yeah. It's their it's it's their trumpets. It's their devices that they've created, and they are again they're using them to to try and dominate, aren't they? Yeah, they are absolutely. And speaking of dominating, they've got slaves to row against the wind, right? This is sort of a, a kind of machine. It's overcoming nature's resistance through domination over these people who are kept as slaves. Mm -hmm. That makes me think that sometimes industry is just kind of another word for stubbornness. You know, I mean, 
<laughs> sometimes yeah, it's yeah, just, yeah. you know, doing what it takes to just like, I'm going to get this done. Yeah, you know, it's like this notion of being industrious, right? I think, mm-hmm. I think in some ways, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I just kind of feel like sometimes you're just, I'm going to do this even if everything is stacked against me. And that's like, that's the thing with the slaves to me. We're going to, yeah, yeah. we're going to sail into the West, even if the wind is not favorable. Mm-hmm. And even if everything is stacked against us, we got slaves, man. I got slaves. Right. We're going to we do this. Yeah. yeah. We're going to make sure we do this. Yep. And making war against the deathless. I mean, wow. Remember that the goal here is to win immortality. This is something that is mm-hmm. against the nature of men. And they're going to try and do it by force of arms and just by pure, I'm, I'm going to say, sort of technological superiority. I mean, they, they, they should True. not, most men would not be able to sail into the West. Obviously, if the New no. are able to make the trip into the West, they must have something. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so, um, yeah, that's what they're going to be using. That's, that's their machine that they're going to use. That is their machine. And certainly on the XY chart here, right? I mean, we're, we're talking about far we're right, top right and as far we're, up as you can possibly yeah. get. This is the upper yeah. right-hand corner right here. <laughs> we're, like, we're like the very edge of the graph, you know? Right. The very corner, right. top right corner. <laughs> and yet, and yet with all that technology, nature proves greater. Nature, well, in this case, the creator proves greater. I mean, land True. and seas are changed. The entire globe is changed so that human industry can never make this voyage again. Right. And furthermore, all that Numenor has ever accomplished, well, in Numenor itself, obviously Numenor has accomplished some things in Middle Earth that continue to stay, but the things that Numenor has accomplished in and of itself, the the, the culture of Numenor, it's destroyed forever. It's gone. Wiped out in in one fell swoop of nature, of uh, of an act by the creator. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, and what could be more natural than the will of the creator? Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. Wow. That's a powerful one. Isn't <laughs> and, it? That really is. And I, I remember when we read that, as I'm looking through the text, I'm seeing those that probably consisted of like four or five of our separate readings when we went through the chapter yeah. and the podcast in season one. It was really yeah. neat to read that all in one fell swoop. Yeah. So intense. I got goosebumps at a few points. It's so Oh, powerful. me too, man. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. Well, we're going to go kind of in the opposite direction now. We're going to go with a much shorter reading. Actually, I'm going to do a series of very short readings. And okay. we're going to skip ahead to the third age here. Uh, I'm calling Yay. this our, our Hobbit interlude. And okay. what I've got here is a few very short one or two paragraph passages from The Hobbit to illustrate the fact that even in Tolkien's simple fairy tale. You know, The Hobbit, that's the book that most of us don't really give a second thought. Well, until right, you listen right. to season two of this podcast. But <laughs> but I want to show that even in this book, this simple kid's book, the struggle between nature and industry is present if you know where to look. That's right. And we'll start with isolated introductions to the goblins, who clearly represent industry, mm-hmm. and wood elves, who are nature, and then we'll see them clash at the Battle of the Five Armies. Sean? Okay. So the first passage I'm going to read is about the goblins as they are introduced in chapter four, Over Hill and Underhill. Sounds good. There in the shadows on a large flat stone sat a tremendous goblin with a huge head, and armed goblins were standing round him, carrying the axes and the bent swords that they use. Now goblins are cruel, wicked, and bad-hearted. They make no beautiful things, but they make many clever ones. 
They can tunnel and mine as well as any but the most skilled dwarves when they take the trouble, though they are usually untidy and dirty. Hammers, axes, swords, daggers, pickaxes, tongs, and also instruments of torture they make very well, or get other people to make to their design, prisoners and slaves that have to work till they die for want of air and light. It is not unlikely that they invented some of the machines that have since troubled the world, especially the ingenious devices for killing large numbers of people at once, for wheels and engines and explosions always delighted them, and also not working with their own hands more than they could help. But in those days and those wild parts, they had not advanced, as it is called, so far. They did not hate dwarves especially, no more than they hated everybody and everything, and particularly the orderly and prosperous. In some parts, wicked dwarves had even made alliances with them, but they had a special grudge against Thorin's people, because of the war which you have heard mentioned, but which does not come into this tale. And anyway, goblins don't care who they catch, as long as it is done smart and secret, and the prisoners are not able to defend themselves. So goblins tunnel, mine, and they make clever, dirty, and nasty things. They make mm-hmm. you know, wheels and engines and explosions, and all these things delight them. They don't just accept the destructive power of industry because it helps them accomplish some sort of goal. This isn't a means to an end. They revel in it. Yeah. 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 They're top right. Very top right here on our graph. Very top right. Even if, even if they're not as effective in terms of machine, you know, I mean, they, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's not for lack of trying. Right. Uh, Yeah. They're, they're, they're dirty. They're untidy, but yeah, they're, they're, they're certainly not very efficient, but man, they're, they're evil about it. Boy, they sure are. And they enjoy it. They revel in it. It's just, yep. oh. Yeah. And we're going to see this again in a couple of readings. So yeah, keep that thought in mind. But now I'm going to move to another passage in The Hobbit, and this is going to describe the Wood Elves of Mirkwood as they're introduced in Chapter 8, Flies and Spiders. Yeah. The feasting people were Wood Elves, of course. These are not wicked folk. If they have a fault, it is distrust of strangers. Though their magic was strong, even in those days they were wary. They differed from the high elves of the West and were more dangerous and less wise. For most of them, together with their scattered relations in the hills and mountains, were descended from the ancient tribes that never went to fairy in the West. There, the light elves and the deep elves and the sea elves went and lived for ages and grew fairer and wiser and more learned and invented their magic and their cunning craft in the making of beautiful and marvelous things before some came back into the wide world. In the wide world, the wood elves lingered in the twilight of our sun and moon, but loved best the stars, and they wandered in the great forests that grew tall in lands that are now lost. They dwelt most often by the edges of the woods, from which they could escape at times to hunt, or to ride and run over the open lands by moonlight or starlight. And after the coming of men, they took ever more and more to the gloaming and the dusk. Still elves they were and remain, and that is good people. In a great cave some miles within the edge of Mirkwood on its eastern side, there lived at this time their greatest king. Before his huge doors of stone a river ran out of the heights of the forest and flowed on and out into the marshes at the feet of the high-wooded lands. This great cave, from which countless smaller ones opened out on every side, wound far underground and had many passages and wide halls, but it was lighter and more wholesome than any goblin dwelling, and neither so deep nor so dangerous. In fact, the subjects of the king mostly lived and hunted in the open woods, and had houses or huts on the ground and in the branches. The beaches were their favorite trees. The king's cave was his palace and the strong place of his treasure, and the fortress of his people against their enemies. Mm -hmm. 
So they're much more in tune with nature. I mean, they much, have caves too, more. but these are much more wholesome caves. Right. This, yep. Yeah. Really clear contrast with the goblins here. The caves are, like you said, wholesome. They're lighter. They're clean. Yeah, they are. They're clean. You, they're you clean really and light. expect they're wholesome, this to yeah. be. Yeah, they really yeah. are. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, like anything else in nature, they're going to be there. They love the trees. They love the beaches in particular. Uh, they hunt in the woods. Uh, yep. You know, presumably to actually eat and not just for sport. Uh, right. But yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, what I think is interesting is that we, we see the wood elves contrasted not only with the goblins, but they're, they're even contrasted with the high elves, you know, the, yeah, the, the yeah, three yeah, kindreds right. of the elves who went to Valinor or fairy as it's called here. And we see that right. they're even more in tune with nature than, than those other elves are. We get mm-hmm. this really cool passage about how the high elves advanced and how they learned how to craft all these wonderful and beautiful things, which is a kind of industry. And of course, this is going to include the Noldor. So that makes a lot of sense. Right. right. But the wood elves stayed behind and they just kind of spent their time, you know, OMG stars. <laughs> <laughs> OMG stars, OMG, OMG trees. OMG stars, OMG trees. You know, they're really just reveling in nature. And so yeah, they are. there's a really clear contrast there. Yeah, there is. A much more clear contrast than there would be between, let's say, the goblins and the Noldor. Not that the mm-hmm. Noldor are comparable, but they do have those elements of industry that the, the wood elves clearly don't yeah. have. Yeah. So if the goblins are top right, then, I mean, really, the, the wood elves of Mirkwood are pretty much bottom left. You know, they, yeah, they, really they generally I mean, they have good motives. some every, things, every right? I mean, they've got the dungeons and... They can be dangerous and, yeah, they, they take yeah. prisoners. They're like obviously. in the middle of that lower left quadrant, you know? Yeah, they're, yeah, they're not far But they're still good left. people. Mm-hmm. No, Absolutely. no, they're not. Absolutely. Exactly. So when these two races meet on the battlefield, the hatred is cold and bitter, as we see in Chapter 17, the clouds burst. And that's where our last reading of The Hobbit's going to come from, huh? Yeah, and it's a really short one, but I just wanted to kind of see yeah. these two kind of come together. Okay. The elves were the first to charge. Their hatred for the goblins is cold and bitter. Their spears and swords shone in the gloom with a gleam of chill flame. So deadly was the wrath of the hands that held them. As soon as the host of their enemies was dense in the valley, they sent against it a shower of arrows, and each flickered as it fled as if with stinging fire. Behind the arrows, a thousand of their spearmen leapt down and charged. The yells were deafening. The rocks were stained black with goblin blood. And that's all. Not really anything else we want to say about that, but it's just, no, a, just that again, face really off cool between nature and industry. These two, yeah, these two forces yeah. facing off against each other. Absolutely. So, but now I think it's time for us to move into Lord of the Rings, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. This I think is where the big passages are. This huh? is where we're going to get into some stuff that <laughs> I think this is what folks showed up to see or to hear, yeah, I guess I yeah, should say. Yeah. And the first one is, you probably guessed it, folks. It's going to be Ents versus Saruman. Really, the next two are Ents versus Saruman. This is Ents versus Saruman Part 1. This is uh, going to be from The Lord of the Rings from the chapter called Treebeard. That's right. And there are two sections we want to read from this final showdown between the children of Yavanna and the corrupted former Maya of Aule, starting with this passage. So, Sean, you go ahead and, and get the first one. You know I'll take the last one. Okay. Hmm. I have not troubled about the Great Wars, said Treebeard. They mostly concern elves and men. That is the business of wizards. Wizards are always troubled about the future. I do not like worrying about the future. I am not altogether on anybody's side, because nobody is altogether on my side, if you understand me. Nobody cares for the woods as I care for them, not even elves nowadays. 
Still, I take more kindly to elves than to others. It was the elves that cured us of dumbness long ago, and that was a great gift that cannot be forgotten, though our ways have parted since. And there are some things, of course, whose side I am altogether not on. I am against them altogether. These Buddharum. He again made a deep rumble of disgust. These orcs and their masters. I used to be anxious when the shadow lay on Mirkwood, but when it removed to Mordor, I did not trouble for a while. Mordor is a long way away, but it seems that the wind is setting east, and the withering of all woods may be drawing near. There is naught that an old ent can do to hold back that storm. He must weather it, or crack. But Saruman now, Saruman is a neighbor. I cannot overlook him. I must do something, I suppose. I have often wondered lately what I should do about Saruman. Who is Saruman? asked Pippin. Do you know anything about his history? Saruman is a wizard, answered Treebeard. More than that, I cannot say. I do not know the history of wizards. They appeared first after the great ships came over the sea. But if they came with the ships, I never can tell. Saruman was reckoned great among them, I believe. He gave up wandering about and minding the affairs of men and elves some time ago. You would call it a very long time ago. And he settled down at Angrenost, or Isengard as the men of Rohan call it. He was very quiet to begin with, but his fame began to grow. He was chosen to be the head of the White Council, they say, but that did not turn out too well. I wonder now if even then Saruman was not turning to evil ways. But at any rate, he used to give no trouble to his neighbors. I used to talk to him. There was a time when he was always walking about my woods. He was polite in those days, always asking my leave, at least when he met me, and always eager to listen. I told him many things that he would never have found out by himself, but he never repaid me in like kind. I cannot remember that he ever told me anything, and he got more and more like that. His face, as I remember it, I have not seen it for many a day, became like windows in a stone wall, windows with shutters inside. I think that I now understand what he is up to. He is plotting to become a power. He has a mind of metal and wheels, and he does not care for growing things, except as far as they serve him for the moment. And now it is clear that he is a black traitor. He has taken up with foul folk, with the orcs. Mm -hmm. Worse than that, he has been doing something to them, something dangerous. For these Isengarders are more like wicked men. It is a mark of evil things that came in the great darkness that they cannot abide the sun. But Saruman's orcs can endure it even if they hate it. 
I wonder what he has done. Are they men he has ruined? Or has he blended the races of orcs and men? That would be a black evil. Treebeard rumbled for a moment as if he were pronouncing some deep subterranean Entish malediction. Some time ago I began to wonder how orcs dared to pass through my woods so freely, he went on. Only lately did I guess that Saruman was to blame, and that long ago he had been spying out all the ways and discovering my secrets. He and his foul folk are making havoc now. Down on the borders they are felling trees, good trees. Some of the trees they just cut down and leave to rot. Orc mischief, that. But most are hewn up and carried off to feed the fires of Orthanc. There is always a smoke rising from Isengard these days. Curse him, root and branch. Many of those trees were my friends, creatures I had known from nut and acorn. Many had voices of their own that are lost forever now, and there are wastes of stump and bramble where once there were singing groves. I have been idle. I have let things slip. It must stop. Treebeard raised himself from his bed with a jerk, stood up, and thumped his hand on the table. The vessels of light trembled and sent up two jets of flame. There was a flicker like green fire in his eyes, and his beard stood out stiff as a great besom. I will stop it, he boomed, and you shall come with me. You may be able to help me. You will be helping your own friends that way, too. For if Saruman is not checked, Rohan and Gondor will have an enemy behind, as well as in front. Our roads go together, to Isengard. We will come with you, said Mary. We will do what we can. Yes, said Pippin. I should like to see the White Hand overthrown. I should like to be there even if I could not be of much use. I shall never forget Ugluk and the crossing of Rohan. Good, good, said Treebeard but I spoke hastily. We must not be hasty. I have become too hot. I must cool myself and think, for it is easier to shout stop than to do it. He strode to the archway and stood for some time under the falling rain of the spring. Then he laughed and shook himself, and wherever the drops of water fell glittering from him to the ground, they glinted like red and green sparks. He came back and laid himself on the bed again and was silent. Oh, I can't wait till we get to Treebeard. I know. <laughs> I can't, you know, it was such a long passage and, you know, I'm trying to be sensitive to the time of this episode and I'm, I'm like, I really don't feel like I can spend full Treebeard time, you know? Like, oh, yeah, yeah. I want to do it like slower than I did it, you know? Yeah. Oh, I know. Like I felt the same thing when I was. <laughs> but it's like, we'll be here all day if I do it at, yeah, at the proper exactly. pace. I'm like, okay, I'm kind of rushing it, but you know, that's all right. I mean, Treebeard takes a long time to say anything because that's, if it's something worth saying, he's going to do that. That's right. Reflection on Saruman's crimes, I, his, his rising anger here that Treebeard has. Let's talk a little mm, bit about yeah. that. Yeah, we, we can, we can talk. Not I mean, long. No. Right. It's I mean, the token reading day, not Alan and Sean talking. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, that. I think. But I think it's it's very what we see here is we do see the protector, right? You know, we talked yeah, about yeah, yeah. him as sort of the sort of the protector of nature, shepherd of the trees, 
because he's mm-hmm. called in the Silmarillion or they're called in the Silmarillion. Right. I think that's what we're seeing here. He's really roused to anger. Sauron's crimes are, they are abominations. If we think back to some of the things the dwarves did in the first age, Saruman's doing worse. Not only is he killing, he's doing, well, all this bad stuff we're going to see. And I think it's really interesting that Treebeard doesn't really seem to understand wizards very much. You know, he kind of thinks yeah. of them as an other. Yeah. That to me seems You're like right. a subtle nature versus industry statement. You know, the answer, pure nature. And wizards, they're all mm-hmm. about studying things and learning things yeah. and advancing. And eh, I think there's a little nature versus industry in the fact that Treebeard doesn't understand wizards. Yeah. I mean, it's not just Saruman. Uh, obviously, Saruman's a whole different ballgame, but wizards True. in general. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, wars are wizard business, uh, even for Gandalf. I mean, his whole job here is to, to yeah, stop Sauron true. and to encourage mm-hmm. all the free peoples to fight against him. Interesting that the Ents even see that elves aren't really necessarily on the side of nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, they don't see them as being far enough to the bottom part of this axis, if you will. Yeah, you that's know, true. Elves have kind of gotten wrapped up in their own stuff. Yeah, yeah. Orcs are definitely not on the side of nature. He knows that much. Yeah. He, he sees where they are. They're, they're really not on our side. Yeah, the elves may definitely. be neutral and we can't count on them to always be on our side, but we know who's our enemy. Yeah. We know who is clearly our enemy. Yeah. And it's those Burarum orcs. Burarum. We get interesting distinction between Sauron and Saruman. You know, Treebeard mm-hmm. is really only worried about Saruman. That's sort of the, yeah. that's the immediate threat because he's closer to Fangorn. Was it the wolf that one hears is worse than the orc that one fears? Yeah, sort there of, you go. Uh, reflection of that Boromir line we just yeah. had a few episodes back. Yeah. yeah. To me, it kind of reminds me of this, this idea we talked about earlier. You know, the idea that industry is really a, it's a problem when it encroaches on nature. I think that's, I don't, I don't think that, that Treebeard would have as much of a problem with the stuff Saruman is doing if it didn't involve, you know, cutting down trees. Yeah. Uh, if we go back to Ali and Yavanna, that's really what we learned there, isn't it? It's not a problem yeah. to advance and use resources as long as you're not destroying nature wantonly to do it. Right. And yet the interesting thing is that that logic is kind of flawed because the way Treebeard sees it, Saruman is worse than Sauron. Yeah. Now, we know that's not the case. So True. clearly Treebeard's just got a limited perspective. But I, I guess that makes sense. I mean, that they are, they're here on, on Earth to sort of play a specific role. And from the perspective of that role, Saruman is doing worse than Sauron. That's true. Yeah. Treebeard, Saruman is a wizard, as if that's really all that matters. In mm-hmm. a way, it's that, like you talk about that other, you know, he's mm-hmm. different from me. Mm-hmm. But they were friends once. At least he acted like a friend, probably just mm-hmm. spying out all the ways, getting, gathering information. But, <laughs> but he acted like a friend. Yeah, acted long enough just to, to get that information, like you said. The mind of metal and wheels, that classic quote about Saruman's obsession with industry, mm-hmm. the line you tried to tag me with at the beginning of the episode. Uh, no care for growing things. <laughs> Only in the best possible way does it apply to you. Is there a possible way that's good? Okay, no, fine. All not. right. Uh, no, I know. So so no care for growing things except as far as they serve them for the moment. It's it's a lot like Yavanna's line about paying toll with fruit upon bough, the, the mm. fear that nature is only going to be valued for what it yields. Yeah. And this is true. really, this is dominion over Arda become domination. It's dominion gone wrong is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. right. It's well said. And what's more, Saruman may actually be using his industrial power to commit crimes against nature. This, this yeah. idea of breeding men with orcs. Oh. Um, I mean, that's, that's dark stuff. That is, yeah, that, is. That's, that's becoming another Morgoth, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. We see that 
Saruman is committing, you know, sort of another one of those cardinal sins of dominion turned into domination. Right. Some of the trees aren't even used. They cut down these trees yeah. and they're left to rot. You yeah. know, it would be one well, thing if it was like Owlay. They need, you know, they need wood. Yeah. But right. they're cutting down trees they don't need. Yeah. They're and just so, doing it to do it. They're being yeah. you know, wanton just, and cruel. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And so that is why we see that nature in the form of the Ents and the Horns is finally roused to anger. And boy, we see what can happen when Ents are roused to anger. Remember that mm-hmm. passage that we read a, a few sections ago? Yeah. About the destruction of the dwarves. So, yeah. But Treebeard is patient, not hasty, as we find out at the nope. end of that passage. So we'll, nope. we'll see the results of this in our next reading, huh? Yes, we will. And this is the big one. This is going to be Ents versus Saruman, part two. And this is from The Lord yep. of the Rings, of course. This is from the chapter Flotsam and Jetsam. This is mm-hmm. the final showdown. Saruman is going to face the full wrath of the Ents. And you folks know what's going to happen to Isengard. (laughs) Not (laughs) going to end well. And Yavanna is going to be watching from Valinor cheering. Yes, she will. We came down over the last ridge into Nankuranir after night had fallen, Mary continued. It was then that I first had the feeling that the forest itself was moving behind us. I thought I was dreaming an Entish dream, but Pippin had noticed it too. We were both frightened, but we did not find out more about it until later. It was the Huorns, or so the Ents call them in short language. Treebeard won't say much about them, but I think they are ants that have become almost like trees, at least to look at. They stand here and there in the wood or under its eaves, silent, watching endlessly over the trees. But deep in the darkest dales there are hundreds and hundreds of them, I believe. There is a great power in them, and they seem able to wrap themselves in shadow. It is difficult to see them moving, but they do. They can move very quickly if they are angry. You stand still looking at the weather, maybe, or listening to the rustling of the wind, and then suddenly you find that you're in the middle of a wood with great groping trees all around you. They still have voices and can speak with the Ents. That's why they're called Huorns, Treebeard says. But they've become queer and wild, dangerous. I should be terrified of meeting them if there were no true Ents about to look after them. Well, in the early night, we crept down a long ravine into the upper end of the Wizard's Vale, the Ents with all that rustling Huorns behind. We could not see them, of course, but the whole air was full of creaking. It was very dark, a cloudy night. They moved at a great speed as soon as they had left the hills and made a noise like a rushing wind. The moon did not appear through the clouds, and not long after midnight there was a tall wood all round the north side of Isengard. There was no sign of enemies nor of any challenge. There was a light gleaming from a high window in the tower, that was all. Treebeard and a few more Ents crept on right round to within sight of the great gates. Pippin and I were with him. We were sitting on Treebeard's shoulders, and I could feel the quivering tenseness in him. But even when they are aroused, Ents can be very cautious and patient. They stood still as carved stones, breathing and listening. Then all at once there was a tremendous stir. Trumpets blared, and the walls of Isengard echoed. We thought that we'd been discovered and that battle was going to begin. But nothing of the sort. All Sodom's people were marching away. I don't know much about this war or about the horsemen of Rohan, but Sodom seems to have meant to finish off the king and all his men with one final blow. He emptied Isengard. I saw the enemy go, endless lines of marching orcs, and troops of them mounted on great wolves, and there were battalions of men, too. Many of them carried torches, and in the flare I could see their faces. Most of them were ordinary men, rather tall and dark-haired, and grim, but not particularly evil-looking. There were some others that were horrible, man-high but with goblin faces, sallow, leering, squint-eyed. 
Do you know, they reminded me at once of that southerner at Bree, only he was not so obviously orc-like as most of these were. I thought of him too, said Aragorn. We had many of these half-orcs to deal with at Helm's Deep. It seems plain now that that southerner was a spy of Saruman's, but whether he was working with the Black Riders or for Saruman alone, I do not know. It is difficult with these evil folk to know when they are in league and when they are cheating one another. Well, of all sorts together, there must have been ten thousand at the very least, said Mary. They took an hour to pass out of the gates. Some went off down the highway to the fords, and some turned away and went eastward. A bridge has been built down there, about a mile away, where the river runs in a very deep channel. You could see it now if you stood up. They were all singing with harsh voices and laughing, making a hideous din. I thought things looked very black for Rohan, but Treebeard did not move. He said, My business is with Isengard tonight, with rock and stone. But though I could not see what was happening in the dark, I believe that Huorns began to move south as soon as the gates were shut again. Their business was with orcs, I think. They were far down the valley in the morning. Or at any rate, there was a shadow there that one couldn't see through. As soon as Saruman had sent off all his army, our turn came. Treebeard put us down and went up to the gates and began hammering on the doors and calling for Saruman. There was no answer except arrows and stones from the walls. But arrows are no use against ants. They hurt them, of course, and infuriate them, like stinging flies. But an ant can be stuck as full of orc arrows as a pincushion and take no serious harm. They cannot be poisoned, for one thing, and their skin seems to be very thick, tougher than bark. It takes a very heavy axe stroke to wound them seriously. They don't like axes. But there would have to be a great many axemen to one ant. A man that hacks once at an ant never gets a chance of a second blow. A punch from an ant fist crumples up iron like thin tin. When Treebeard had got a few arrows in him, he began to warm up, to get positively hasty, as he would say. He let out a great hoom-hom, and a dozen more ants came striding up. An angry ant is terrifying. Their fingers and their toes just freeze onto rock, and they tear it up like bread crust. It was like watching the work of great tree roots in a hundred years, all packed into a few moments. They pushed pulled, tore, shook, and hammered, and clang, bang, crash, crack, in five minutes they had these huge gates just lying in ruin, and some were already beginning to eat into the walls like rabbits in a sandpit. I don't know what Saruman thought was happening, but anyway, he did not know how to deal with it. His wizardry may have been falling off lately, of course, but anyway, I think he's not much grit, not much plain courage alone in a tight place without a lot of slaves and machines and things, if you know what I mean. Very different from old Gandalf. I wonder if his fame was not all along mainly due to his cleverness in settling at Isengard. No, said Aragorn. Once he was as great as his fame made him. His knowledge was deep, his thought was subtle, and his hands marvelously skilled, and he had a power over the minds of others. The wise he could persuade, and the smaller folk he could daunt. Well, that power he certainly still keeps. There are not many in Middle-earth that I should say were safe if they were left alone to talk with him even now when he has suffered a defeat. Gandalf, Elrond, and Galadriel, perhaps, now that his wickedness has been laid bare, but very few others. The Ents are safe, said Pippin. He seems at one time to have got round them, but never again. And anyway, he did not understand them, and he made the great mistake of leaving them out of his calculations. He had no plan for them, and there was no time to make any once they had set to work. As soon as our attack began, 
the few remaining rats in Isengard started bolting through every hole that the Ents made. The Ents let the men go after they'd questioned them, two or three dozen only down at this end. I don't think many orc folk of any size escaped. Not from the Huorns. There was a wood full of them all round Isengard by that time, as well as those that had gone down the valley. When the Ents had reduced a large part of the southern walls to rubbish, and what was left of his people had bolted and deserted him, Saruman fled in a panic. He seems to have been at the gates when we arrived. I expect he came to watch his splendid army march out. When the Ents broke their way in, he left in a hurry. They did not spot him at first, but the night had opened out, and there was a great light of stars, quite enough for Ents to see by, and suddenly Quickbeam gave a cry. The tree killer! The tree killer! Quickbeam is a gentle creature, but he hates Saruman all the more fiercely for that. His people suffered cruelly from orc axes. He leapt down the path from the inner gate, and he can move like a wind when he is roused. There was a pale figure hurrying away, in and out of the shadows of the pillars, and it had nearly reached the stores to the tower door. But it was a near thing. Quickbeam was so hot after him that he was within a step or two of being caught and strangled when he slipped in through the door. When Saruman was safe back at Orthanc, it was not long before he set some of his precious machinery to work. By that time, there were many Ents inside Isengard. Some had followed Quickbeam, and others had burst in from the north and east. They were roaming about and doing a great deal of damage. Suddenly, up came fires and foul fumes. The vents and shafts all over the plain began to spout and belch. Several of the Ents got scorched and blistered. One of them, Beachbone, I think he was called, a very tall, handsome Ent, got caught in a spray of some liquid fire and burned like a torch. A horrible sight. That sent them mad. I thought they had been really roused before, but I was wrong. I saw what it was like at last. It was staggering. They roared and boomed and trumpeted until stones began to crack and fall at the mere noise of them. Mary and I lay on the ground and stuffed our cloaks into our ears. Round and round the rock of Orthanc, the Ents went striding and storming like a howling gale, breaking pillars, hurling avalanches of boulders down the shafts, tossing up huge slabs of stone into the air like leaves. The tower was in the middle of a spinning whirlwind. I saw iron posts and blocks of masonry go rocketing up hundreds of feet and smash against the windows of Orthanc. But Treebeard kept his head. He had not had any burns, luckily. He did not want his folk to hurt themselves in their fury, and he did not want Saruman to escape out of some hole in the confusion. Many of the Ents were hurling themselves against the Orthanc rock, but that defeated them. It is very smooth and hard. Some wizardry is in it, perhaps, older and stronger than Saruman's. Anyway, they could not get a grip on it or make a crack in it, and they were bruising and wounding themselves against it. So Treebeard went out into the ring and shouted. His enormous voice rose above all the din. There was a dead silence suddenly. In it we heard a shrill laugh from a high window in the tower. That had a queer effect on the Ents. They had been boiling over. Now they became cold, grim as ice, and quiet. They left the plain and gathered round Treebeard, standing quite still. He spoke to them for a little in their own language. I think he was telling them of a plan he had made in his old head long before. Then they just faded silently away in the grey light. Day was dawning by that time. They set a watch on the tower, I believe, but the watchers were so well hidden in shadows and kept so still that I could not see them. The others went away north. All that day they were busy out of sight. Most of the time we were left alone. It was a dreary day, and we wandered about a bit, though we kept out of the view of the windows of Orthanc as much as we could. They stared at us so threateningly. A good deal of the time we spent looking for something to eat. 
and also we sat and talked, wondering what was happening away south in Rohan, and what had become of all the rest of our company. Every now and then we could hear in the distance the rattle and fall of stone, and thudding noises echoing in the hills. In the afternoon we walked round the circle, and went to have a look at what was going on. There was a great shadowy wood of horns at the head of the valley, and another round the northern wall. We did not dare to go in, but there was a rending, tearing noise of work going on inside. Ents and horns were digging great pits and trenches, and making great pools and dams, gathering all the waters of the Eisen and every other spring and stream that they could find. We left them to it. At dusk, Treebeard came back to the gate. He was humming and booming to himself and seemed pleased. He stood and stretched his great arms and legs and breathed deep. I asked him if he was tired. Tired? he said. Tired? Well, no, not tired. Stiff, I need a good draft of it, Wash. We've worked hard. We've done more stone cracking and earth gnawing today than we have done in many a long year before. But it is nearly finished. When night falls, do not linger near this gate, or in the old tunnel. Water may come through, and it will be foul water for a while, until all the filth of Saruman is washed away. Then Eisen can run clean again. He began to pull down a bit more of the walls, in a leisurely sort of way, just to amuse himself. We were just wondering where it would be safe to lie and get some sleep, when the most amazing thing of all happened. There was the sound of a rider coming swiftly up the road. Mary and I lay quiet, and Treebeard hid himself in the shadows under the arch. Suddenly a great horse came striding up like a flash of silver. It was already dark, but I could see the rider's face clearly. It seemed to shine, and all its clothes were white. I just sat up, staring with my mouth open. I tried to call out and couldn't. There was no need. He halted just by us and looked down at us. Gandalf, I said at last, but my voice was only a whisper. Did he say, Hello, Pippin, this is a pleasant surprise? No, indeed. He said, Get up, you tomfool of a took. Where in the name of wonder in all this ruin is Treebeard? I want him, quick. Treebeard heard his voice and came out of the shadows at once, and there was a strange meeting. I was surprised because neither of them seemed surprised at all. Gandalf obviously expected to find Treebeard here, and Treebeard might almost have been loitering about near the gates on purpose to meet him. Yet we had told the old aunt all about Moria, and I remembered a queer look he gave us at the time. I can only suppose that he had seen Gandalf, or had some news of him, but would not say anything in a hurry. Don't be hasty is his motto, but nobody, not even elves, will say much about Gandalf's movements when he's not there. Hmm, Gandalf, said Treebeard. I'm glad you have come. Wood and water, stock and stone, I can master. But there is a wizard to manage here. Treebeard, said Gandalf, I need your help. You have done much, but I need more. I have about ten thousand orcs to manage. Then those two went off and had a council together in some corner. It must have seemed very hasty to Treebeard, for Gandalf was in a tremendous hurry and was already talking at a great pace before they passed out of hearing. They were only away a matter of minutes, perhaps a quarter of an hour. Then Gandalf came back to us, and he seemed relieved, almost merry. He did say he was glad to see us then. But Gandalf, I cried, where have you been, and have you seen the others? Wherever I have been, I am back, he answered in the genuine Gandalf manner. 
Yes, I have seen some of the others. The news must wait. This is a perilous night, and I must ride fast. But the dawn may be brighter, and if so, we shall meet again. Take care of yourselves, and keep away from Orthanc. Goodbye. Treebeard was very thoughtful after Gandalf had gone. He'd evidently learnt a lot in a short time and was digesting it. He looked at us and said, Hmm, well, I find you're not such hasty folk as I thought. You said much less than you might, and no more than you should. Hmm, this is a bundle of news and no mistake. Well, now Treebeard must get busy again. Before he went, we got a little news out of him. It did not cheer us up at all. But for the moment, we thought more about you three than about Frodo and Sam. Or about poor Boromir. For we gathered that there was a great battle going on, or soon would be, and that you were in it and might never come out of it. Horns will help, said Treebeard. Then he went away, and we did not see him again until this morning. It was deep night. We lay on top of a pile of stone and could see nothing beyond it. Mist or shadows blotted out everything like a great blanket all round us. The air seemed hot and heavy, and it was full of rustlings, creakings, and a murmur like voices passing. I think that hundreds more of the Huorns must have been passing by to help in the battle. Later there was a great rumble of thunder away south, and flashes of lightning far away across Rohan. Every now and then we could see mountain peaks, miles and miles away, stab out suddenly black and white, and then vanish. And behind us there were noises like thunder in hills, but different. At times the whole valley echoed. It must have been about midnight when the Ents broke the dams and poured all the gathered waters through a gap in the northern wall down into Isengard. The Huorn Dark had passed and the thunder had rolled away. The moon was sinking behind the western mountains. Isengard began to fill up with black creeping streams and pools. They glittered in the last light of the moon as they spread over the plain. Every now and then the waters found their way down into some shaft or spout hole. Great white steams hissed up. Smoke rose in billows. There were explosions and gusts of fire. One great coil of vapor went whirling up, twisting round and round Orthanc until it looked like a tall peak of cloud, fiery underneath and moonlit above. And still more water poured in, until at last Isengard looked like a huge flat saucepan, all steaming and bubbling. We saw a cloud of smoke and steam from the south last night when we came to the mouth of Nankuranir, said Aragorn. We feared that Saruman was brewing some new devilry for us. Not he, said Pippin. He was probably choking and not laughing any more. By the morning, yesterday morning, the water had sunk down into all the holes, and there was a dense fog. We took refuge in that guardroom over there, and we had rather a fright. The lake began to overflow and pour out through the old tunnel, and the water was rapidly rising up the steps. We thought we were going to get caught like orcs in a hole, but we found a winding stair at the back of the storeroom that brought us out on top of the arch. It was a squeeze to get out, as the passages had been cracked and half-blocked with fallen stone near the top. There we sat high up above the floods and watched the drowning of Isengard. The Ents kept on pouring in more water till all the fires were quenched and every cave filled. The fog slowly gathered together and steamed up into a huge umbrella of cloud. It must have been a mile high. In the evening there was a great rainbow over the eastern hills, and then the sunset was blotted out by a thick drizzle on the mountainsides. It all went very quiet. A few wolves howled mournfully far away. The Ents stopped the inflow in the night and sent the Eisen back into its old course. 
And that was the end of it all. You know, I don't think we even really have to talk about that too much. No, <laughs> I think you're right. That speaks it all, doesn't it? That that says it all. You know, I mean, yeah. we see, really, the, the last showdown in the Legendarium between nature and industry, and it is sort of the most obvious one. Mm-hmm. We see yeah. nature win handily. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. Yvonne's cheering off in the West watching this. <laughs> yes, she is. I think no, even no. Aule is probably cheering at this point. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, at, his, uh, you know, uh, we know th- at the defeat of his student gone bad. Yes, yeah. exactly. And we do see uh, bottom left versus top right here, don't we? On the boy, on the we graph. sure do. No doubt about it. So well, we'll talk more about that when we get to that point uh-huh. in the the main yep. feed. But for now, that will wrap it up. That'll do it for this fifth annual fifth annual Tolkien Reading Day episode. So now, next week, we'll be welcoming some listeners back to join us for Questions After Nightfall. That'll be our 10th Questions After Nightfall. Well, But the week after that, we'll be starting our next chapter, Lothlorien, where we'll spend four episodes there. And of course, don't forget that the talk continues all night long at the Prancing Pony. That's right. We've always got lots of discussion happening in our social media spaces. At our Common Room on Facebook, you'll find comments, questions, corrections, and more on every episode, as well as updates from us throughout the week. Just look for the Prancing Pony Podcast on Facebook and click the like and follow buttons. And now we have another common room on Reddit. You can find great discussions there at r slash Prancing Pony Pod. And as always, you can find us on Twitter and on Instagram with the handle at Prancing Pony Pod. So follow us wherever you happen to be. And if you like us, please share us on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, social media, anywhere else you can find Tolkien fans. And if you really want to let the world know your feelings about us, give us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more reviews we have, the more visible the podcast is, and that helps others find us and this great community of Tolkien fans we've built together. And if you'd like access to exclusive content like postscripts, quarterly specials, PPP swag, and more, check out patreon.com slash prancingponypod to find out how you can join the fellowship of the podcast. Now, the show's running long, but we have time for something in the mailbag tonight. Sean, what do we have? We've got time for one, and we might end up regretting even bringing this one in because I have a feeling we're going to get in a little bit of trouble. But okay. let's let's do it. We've got a very speculative question here that we have not really prepared any answers for. So let's just consider it Those practice for questions after nightfall next week. But it is <laughs> on topic enough. for Tolkien Reading Day, so let's just have some fun with it. Okay. Logan wrote to us to ask, I have a fun, hypothetical, slash speculative question for you two about Ents. Logan says, I work in natural resources. How would Ents reproduce if the Entwives were around still? Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Would, it goes on. Would it be just like plants with pollen and the ovum? Or yes, would it be like done. humans? <laughs> Since Ents are uh, humanoid in shape. Uh, I don't know if they're anatomically correct, but okay. I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Oh, man. Logan, first of all. I am very sorry that you have to hear this from us. Honestly, I would have thought that your parents would have told you about the birches and the beaches and that oh, you would have awful. heard all oh, this a long awful. time ago. <laughs> the birches and beaches. Oh, man. But yeah. since they did yeah. not, and I am sorry for that, we'll do what we can. We will um, do what we can. Uh, I think we need to insert at least one need of wood joke here. I mean, <laughs> do you have one handy? I, I think that was it, honestly. <laughs> that probably was, yeah. I think that yeah, covers yeah. us. That just about does right there and gets us in trouble too. Yep, yep. Oh, goodness. Oh, man. Obviously, mm. there's 
and I don't even. <laughs> of course, there's. Do Ali and Yvonne watch? I want to know. No, no, no. I mean, hey, look, they've been married for a long time. You never know what they might. Okay, anyway. let the obviously, yeah. obviously, there's nothing in Tolkien on this. Uh, uh, no. There's nothing in Flora of Middle Earth either. Because those are decent people. Because they're decent people. <laughs> I I looked this up on Google, and all I got was uh, one search hit that says, what is wrong with you? Um, <laughs> yeah, that's about right, <laughs> especially given your recent search history. <laughs> the things I do for this podcast, I've had Johnson's some questionable Johnson's fluid beef. <laughs> <laughs> and the hard oh, pounding. Man. And the hard pounding. <laughs> so here's here's, my, here's my honest thought on this, Logan. Magical and sentient versions of things found in nature in Tolkien's world, they're still biologically those things, right? I mean, I'm thinking that's of true. Yeah. Manway's eagles, as far as we know, reproduce like regular eagles. Yeah, they're going to lay eggs, right? Right. Ungoliant's descendants reproduce like regular spiders, as far Including as we know. Including killing also their mates, eggs. as far as we know. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. So I tend yeah. to think that the ants probably reproduce more like trees than like people. Yes, yeah, they're... yeah, I don't know. When they look for a date, though, do they use timber? Swipe <laughs> left and swipe right. Sorry, sorry. Oh, that's great. <laughs> oh, timber. Oh man. Oh man. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Of course. Of course. When they have unrequited love, I think they just pine over them. Oh, <laughs> that's awful. I'm, I'm. I'm sorry. Anyway, you were saying. You were saying that is truly awful. You're just going to stand there and just make jokes and just make this hard for me, aren't you? Probably. It's, ar- probably it's already is. hard. I'm not going to touch that <laughs> one. Is, no, don't. So, yeah, okay, they're humanoid in shape. But remember, ants can turn tree-ish. Trees can turn right. ant-ish. So yeah, I think yeah. biologically they're probably more like trees. Now, with that said. That makes sense. I have only the vaguest idea of how trees reproduce. So to say nothing of people. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I have two kids, man. Come do, on. Do, do. Do, do, do. I figured All that right, one yeah. out. <laughs> uh, well, I won't say I'm any sp- good at it, but I figured it out. <laughs> don't forget to spruce yourself up before your date, Quick Beam. <laughs> oh, man. Don't forget to trim the bushes. Oh, man. Always be, be prune the bushes, Be careful where you prune. Yeah, Always be careful prune where you prune. Oh, man. I can and just not imagine, too much. though, Quick not No, too much. no, no. I can see Quick Beam now telling, telling Treebeard, man, she's got a really nice ash. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm man. sorry. How many man. of these do you have? <laughs> I could go on oh. forever. Does he get her number before she leaves? Oh, before she leaves, yeah. Oh, uh, and of course, all I got is bad puns. No, no, exactly. And I could just imagine one ant telling another, maybe it's time to branch out. Uh, I don't know. I'm <laughs> just. <laughs> Oh, it's late, folks. Please forgive us our terribly tasteless puns, our terribly tasteless tree puns. We really need to stop, but I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to either, but I don't know that I have too many more. Oh, man. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Well. Bad, bad, bad stuff. (laughs) Terribly sorry. I don't know. I don't know, Logan. I I think... I, I think they my do real like answer trees. would be Sean's too. Is they are because they can turn tree-ish, 
and trees can turn yeah. into sh- they've got to reproduce the way trees do. So I think so. I think they I think they do whatever and, trees yeah. do. I don't know what that is. I trust that Logan <laughs> Maybe does. we should have looked that up. Yeah. <laughs> it's very confusing to me. Well, I it doesn't that, involve Barry White. Let's put it that way. It doesn't no. involve any music. It might involve <laughs> Barry White. Oh, 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 I bow before your superior <laughs> punnage. B-E-R-R-Y. White. And do yeah, they do it on the beach? Oh, oh, <laughs> this is now, now I've set you on the wrong course. It's going to be. You have. You really, uh, you really have. Yeah, I really yeah. have. Terrible stuff. Well, on that note, I'm going to just officially wrap this up for another episode of the Prancing Pony podcast before we get into more trouble. But yes, please indeed. be sure to join us next week when we'll probably get into more trouble because we'll be publicly humiliated by some of our most supportive listeners. That is always a lot of fun, strangely enough. Yeah, indeed it is. But as always, folks, we want to thank each of you for listening, especially to such a long episode, and also to give a very special thank you to our patrons at the Cure Dance Contribution Tier. Demay in Alaska, James in Virginia, Tamsin in Minnesota, Emily in Texas, Chad in Texas, Lance in New Jersey, Paul in Colorado, Jerry in Texas, Bruce in California, Mario in Utah, Seth in Texas, Ella in California, and Joseph in Texas. Thank you all so very much. Make sure you don't miss a single episode of the Prancing Pony Podcast. Subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And one last thing as always, don't forget to send your questions, comments, and most of all, please, your inappropriate ent jokes to Barliman at theprancingponypodcast.com. Barliman is never punctual with the mail, but we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And your question or comment may be featured on an upcoming show. Well, this has been far too short a time to spend among such excellent and admirable listeners. But until next time. Farewell, friends.